Published in 1992, political scientist Francis Fukuyama's End of History described a world in which he saw the 70-plus year struggle between the authoritarian styles of government meeting an unequivocal end with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. What triumph, principally the American system of liberal democratic capitalism, was a model that in many ways proceeded to envelop the rest of the world in the coming years. For this, Fukuyama gets much right. But as the title of the book implies, the notion of an end to all other forms of civilization is questionable. And in the light of the rise of rival development models in Asia and a tentatively resurgent Russia, the thesis appears inaccurate at best or grossly absurd at worst. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time Hello, welcome back to the program. We are still here. This is the Myth of the 20th Century podcast, and I'm Nick, and I'm joined by Hans and Adam. How are you boys doing? Doing all right. I am doing well, Nicholas. Very good. And I'm doing all right, too. And I wanted to just make a note of that. Uh, thank you to the uh, people who helped uh, contribute to um, my rent fund. <laughs> so, the Nick Fund. That was actually very helpful. Um, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. It's yes. Set up. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, the, I... You know, we like to help kids in uh, Africa, but I, there's I starving a... kids here, too. <laughs> there's one starving yeah, exactly. Nick Mason here. I think we made a joke at one point, like, you can get, like, uh, Elon Musk Starlink or whatever in Lagos, Nigeria, but we can't even get poor Nick, like, a decent satellite internet connection in the United States of America. Yeah, um, it's... There's a waiting many, list. Many such cases, actually. It's... Yeah, there is. I, I've actually, I'm actually, well, I, that's complicated. I, I there was a point which I was on it because I was going to split that with a neighbor of mine, but um, then he moved away, so I don't know how that's going to work. Yeah, you kind of have to like move together at that but, point. That's sort of would be uh, difficult. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, well, we today are going to talk about some somewhat topical intellectual type content i think is maybe the way to put it i have a lot that i want to get to i'm a bit scattered in some of the notes that i have for this but um let me just start by i'll ask um you guys if you've noticed maybe these days uh, our enemies do they seem somewhat reluctant to make a positive case for their system? 
because the way I see it, they tend to only these days they they mostly just uh, point at the bad thing. Yeah. You know, they they become I mean obviously even more censorious recently. It's getting I mean I don't know if you saw the recent uh, article by Glenn Greenwald about basically the national security state saying that uh, big tech censorship is necessary and instrumental to the security of their of the state. Yeah, I I don't know if uh, well his position is sort of what uh, the left has been going on about with Elon's attempt by Twitter or what, what's what's Greenwald's take on tech? No, but Greenwald, no, no, he's doing the contrary Jew thing. He's he's calling it out. He's just okay. pointing out that this is what they're saying. That's what I expected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At this point, at least. Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, um, I, I think, my point here is I think that you're you're probably onto something that the uh, yeah, the regime is it's struggling to come up with internal wins, and so it's looking for external losses. And I think the Russia thing is like the most obvious case for that, or COVID, or whatever. And you know, one of the easiest ways any any authority is going to reinforce its authority is to. Uh, have a cause celeb for its existence. And one of that, the easiest emotional ways to do that is with fear and, and scaring people about the, uh, the foe over the horizon. And, you know, historically that would be the other tribe, but, uh, you know, these days with globo homo ism being what it is, uh, the other tribe is really a sort of a nebulous concept that, it's kind of applied to the villain of the day, whether it's the Charlottesville people or January 6th or uh, Putler, whatever they're calling him now over in Russia. Uh, any Anybody, you know, who wants power is uh, going to get at least some additional amount of that from an incremental amount of the population by creating an enemy. Uh, and if you lack any internal goods... Like, you know, the, the Chinese government, for example, tries to, uh, they definitely play up the nationalism card and they, you know, they, they blame Japan and America for things. But what they do have going for them that the Western world has not had for a long time, probably since uh, the 50s, is uh, a, a rising economy. And so they can offer that to their people as like, okay, our system is working for you. It's delivering the goods. Uh, but the West is really not. And so it's got to come up with... Uh, some reason why inflation's raging and you know that's what the biden administration's been doing they've been blaming blaming russia but you know despite the fact that there's very easy uh numbers that have been published on inflation the majority of it actually starting well well before this whole conflict started up and most people know that intuitively but you can prove it statistically uh but most people don't uh don't bother to really look into that very hard but i mean the facts are there if you want to look into it harder uh, that, that's how I see this stuff. I mean, you know, the empire is is showing its age. It's uh, it's it's calls to uh, democracy and freedom or whatever else you know buzzwords it it has used in the past uh, have been ringing very hollow. And I think a lot of these uh, attempts to move the goalposts towards things like homosexuality, gay marriage, uh, transsexuality, and 
pedophilia. I, I, I'm shocked that they've gone for that because I always thought that would be something that they would use as a, a way to uh, politically assassinate people. But um, it seems to be that they're they're pushing this envelope now too um, as a new frontier for coming up with uh, a reason for their their power and a reason to uh raison d'etre yeah to fear it it used to be you could at least the kulak say here there are sneakers and blue jeans and other uh, consumables you know we have product product is nice and now they have to say have to i mean they bizarrely say well you know if you uh if you come over to our side then we'll let your children uh get us this uh, sex mutilation surgeries or whatever yeah it, i agree adam it's um, conditions are deteriorating and they do seem unable to make a positive case for themselves and are more and more resorting to uh, repression i mean heavy-handed measures in order in order to keep to maintain order and to crush any potential uh, threats to their to their rule what I wanted to discuss today in the context of this, and I think it's appropriate, is the last time that I think someone really tried to make a positive case. And that's uh, Francis Fukuyama's often mocked, often referenced, and rarely read The End of History. And I did my, my community uh, service to the people here, and I read this book. I I was ho- like I can explain why I, I was interested in reading it uh, to some extent. I, I all, what I'll say is that uh, I think it is fitting, uh, especially considering some of the predictions that uh, he's known for with respect to events that are taking place in Eastern Europe. But the what I wanted to find is I, I just wanted to find someone to make a case for the system. Um, we can talk about what that is exactly because I don't know if that's where the best place to start is or not. Um, I think let's let's give a little bit of a background. I think people are familiar with Francis Fukuyama. I mean, it's it's just you follow file it under takes that did not age very well and already did not age very well in the mid nineties and. I know he's written a lot of revisions to this book. Um, I think he wrote one called like After the End of History. And I know that in re- very recently he's been writing a little bit about um, also walking walking back. And he's become ironically himself almost something of a pessimist recently, which is a far cry from the uh, triumphalism and the, the victory dance there at the end of the Cold War. And to put that into context, I do think that that was a time in which, you know, he was riding a certain kind of wave that crested with the American domination of the 20th century and its victory over uh, communism and um, broadly speaking, I guess you call fascism. Um, the, that is a nebulous concept, but he, he would probably he would frame it that way. Totalitarian. But of the three dominant ideologies. Yeah, right. But he would describe that as well, the communism. Right. Um, Right. It it uh it was definitely a high water moment, you know, the with the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
and some of the problems that are really hitting the fan now. Is he a neocon? Not or really did he there. Like, Run in those circles? No. Well, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Okay, so he he's a Straussian, uh, and he was definitely associated with that clique. Though he did make some break with them over the Iraq War, in particular. Um, we can. So one of the kind of things I was wondering before. I started the book was to what extent this is an exercise in sort of Straussian cynicism and like almost like a, like a secret that there was some kind of secret doctrine here and that he was, he, he was doing some kind of, I don't know, like almost Machiavellian type of exercise and obfuscation of, of power, et cetera. And I'm, I'm not really necessarily convinced either way on this, uh, his associations are definitely suspicious. And in general, I tend to ascribe if I'm to choose between naivete and of uh, malice, if you will, uh, I, I tend tend to go with with the later. But that's just me. I mean, I, I think that that's a necessary survival instinct when it comes to navigating this kind of stuff. But from a bigger picture the thing is is that if you it doesn't really matter because the result is the same whether it's sincerity or it's you know it's kind of a work uh either way you end up with the same thing what it is is a, a court historian mythologizing the rationale of the system and what his personal motivations to do this are aren't really the point uh the question as to whether or not he's a neoconservative uh, no he's not a neoconservative or at least he eventually came to denounce neoconservatism i think maybe more accurately you would say he's a neoliberal uh, but the, the terminology here the thing is like the more important question is is he jewish it's like no obviously he's not jewish he's a japanese man he's a japanese man who doesn't speak any japanese but he's also not a hapa he's he's a japanese man he's he's in many respects the creation of of the system that he advocates and defends. He is a raceless cosmopolitan in service of Amer Jew Jewish American imperial power. That's, that's who he is. Uh, and on top of that, he's a philosopher of history. And if I'm going to say anything, uh, I, I sorry, wanted I mentioned that I wanted to try to say something nice about him. And I will, I will add that in that you, with respect to the Iraq war. He, he did, distance himself from this he thought that it was um he he thought it was uh he I, it, again it's like how much does he really understand these people apparently he was you know actually personal friends with not just collaborator with uh, paul wolfowitz and uh following the iraq war i it's my understanding they have not spoken since then oh jeez. so did he not understand what these people were about did i mean you can speculate like the thing is, it's like he, his framework for this is one in which like you would assume that because if it's a Jew writing it, it's like, well, well, yeah, boy, like this is liberal democracy, which means Jewish rule. Like, don't you understand that? But the way he frames it is like, he, he ignores this and pretends that this is actually like a, um, 
neutral sort of managerial state where there's no particular like tribal ruler, no these kinds of motivations are in the past, right? It's just part of history. And I can get more into detail on some of these things, but just I I don't think he's necessarily like he's in some respects kind of a laughable figure. Yes, because I mean, he's dancing on the corpse of the USSR with this, you know, uh, what's the like American football analogy, whatever. He's doing the, the, the shucking oh, the and jiving. Oh, uh, the touchdown the, uh, the uh, dance. The, yeah, yeah. The Deion yeah. Sanders, yeah, yeah. Neon Deion, whatever. For the next, you know, 30 years, like he continually is forced by the events of history to sort of walk back what he said at the at the end of the Cold War. Uh, his initial, he initially wrote an article on the end of history, and that was published in uh, 1989, I believe. And then the actual book was, uh, I believe, 92 was the first edition. Uh, I could be wrong about that. It could be 91, but that, I think it's really here nor there. The point is he wrote it at the, at the, the collapse of the Soviet Union when this was published. So... Um, I, I don't want to make it too much about him per se, though. I think he'll come up a little bit. Um, he is an interesting example, though, as an intellectual of sort of his own ideological, his own worldview. Like he, he is a, he is a walking embodiment of of the last man in many respects. But he at least does a serious attempt at a theory about this, a serious intellectual rationalization of this. And so I think he deserves a little bit of credit for that because I don't know of anyone else since then who's even bothered to try. I, I guess you could say like Steven Pinker maybe, uh, though I've never uh, read his like What's his big oh, better angels God. or whatever? Yeah, I've read some of his articles. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, it's so cringe. And like the the people who, uh, I don't know if Bill Gates is actually this middle brow that he publicly seems to let on, but he's got books like that on his reading list, on this public reading list. I think it was like BillGates.com or something. And I, I looked at this once, and and it was like Stephen Pinker's. Uh, books were on there and it's like it's like saying Malcolm Gladwell is like a innovative insightful man um I mean these guys are basically columnists that uh I don't know sort of shroud themselves in ac academic credentials but um I, I don't I don't find their insights to be anything more than pop psychology to be honest nor, nor do I find my own to, to be clear I, I'm just saying you know, ground shaking uh, philosophy is is not the uh, basis for what they're writing. That's all I'm saying. I'll give credit to Fukuyama, though. I mean, he makes a he makes a try at it. Um, I don't, I, I don't. He's not an unsophisticated thinker by any means. I, I don't think that. He's just the the um, the the wagon he is hitched to is is taking him off of a cliff. I don't know if that metaphor works or not, but that's that's what I got for you. And well, I, I was I was poking I, around very tentatively on... on like Fukuyama. What what is he up to these days? And I stumbled across uh, this article, which I uh, 
will link to, I, I seem to recall it was uh, something like the Prudentialist. Oh, yeah, that, that's what it was at Substack. And uh, he was looking at Fukuyama's uh, analysis of what's going on in Ukraine. And he came up with uh, 12 points and the Prudentialist uh, tongue-in-cheek said, well, you know, if he'd made it 14 points, that might have been a little bit too on the nose. Uh, so I thought that was kind of funny. But uh, he was saying, oh, what's what's this that guy up to? It is kind of funny because that was actually uh, – I, I just want to add. It is funny because that was his crit- criticism of the – uh, ruthless bl- bloodlust of the neoconservatives in you know the, the mid 2000s and mm-hmm. the invasion of Iraq. He he said that he would prefer sort of a neo Wilsonian approach. Yeah, and uh, I won't go through all the points. Obviously, uh, you can look that article up yourself. It's uh, it's not bad, but it's basically I, I only brought it up because I was. Uh, it was mentioning what he's doing these days, and apparently he's—I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly—but uh, Skopje, North Macedonia. Uh, he's teaching uh, a leadership academy for development. <laughs> who the hell attends this crap? It's basically people who want to be in government. I think uh, the development. Well, it's, like... it's one of these. Um, it's part of the wider post-Soviet project, which he's been an instrumental part of for a long time. And he was a part of before the end of the Soviet Union. I mean, he was, Francis Fukuyama was known as a, basically a Sovietologist or something to that effect. Uh, you know, his work with Rumsfeld and so forth and in the eighties and, the, the 80s and uh, prior to that in the Rand Corps, that was his, uh, his primary specialty was analyzing the Soviet Union and, and basically doing intelligence gathering on the Soviet Union and writing about the Soviet Union. So he's been involved with Eastern European politics for 40 years now. So it makes sense that this is where he would move to next. And, you know, 40 years ago, he was analyzing Eastern Europe from the United States. Now he is uh, in Eastern Europe uh, furthering the goals of the United States. Mm -hmm. So it actually makes perfect sense that he's in uh, Skopje, North Macedonia, uh, or, or uh, yeah, I guess Phyrome, or whatever we're supposed to call it to please our, our Greek audience. But, um, yeah, it, it makes it makes complete sense to me that he would be there. It's also one of these blow-off sinecures that's very common amongst uh, this sort of academic thing take complex. Uh, it's just a way of ingratiating him and giving him money. And I'm sure in return, he gives certain connections to, uh, you know, DOD contractors and academics and so forth. This, yeah. is how the, this is how the game is played, obviously. Clinton he's a, speaking you know, fees at Goldman Sachs. He's a he's a real mover and shaker. I mean, this, he's been around long enough. He's accumulated enough, you know, sort of social capital that this is one of the ways in which the game is played. We know that. Um, so it, it does, that doesn't actually shock me too much that he's, that he would be doing that. Uh, uh, yeah, I was, I was reading up on the history of, of Fukuyama. I guess we should talk about him a little before we get into his fully into his, um, works. Uh, when I was looking into his history, I, w- I was actually curious though, who published uh, The End of History and the Last Man? And 
where did this actually originate from? And it originated as an article in the national interest way back in the day. And it was eventually sort of morphed into a long-form novel, is my understanding. And this is a very similar parallel history to uh, The Clash of Civilizations by Samuel Huntington. That's a book that's particularly well-read. I think we've acknowledged... Well, that was largely a response to Fukuyama. Yeah, we, we've... Um, we, we've discussed it on the show. I own a copy of it. Uh, uh, I got it used, but um, it, it's actually a very prescient book. And in some ways, I think actually Fukuyama's work was very prescient. Uh, but it's a very similar pattern. Um, of course, Samuel Huntington published sort of the first uh, primary thesis in uh, foreign foreign affairs or uh, you know, foreign policy, the, sort of the, the flagship journal of, uh, of the Council on Foreign Relations. Whereas uh, uh, Fukuyama published it in the National Interest, which was sort of the burgeoning neoconservative uh, magazine of the time in the in the in the 80s. Of course, now National Interest is, uh, I guess you'd call it a more realist school, or you know, it's the writers there are big fans of people like John Mearsheimer, for example. Uh, you know, as far as foreign policy minds go, or international relations minds go. Um, but anyways, Fukuyama, you know, like I said, was was basically just regarded as this sort of uh, um, uh, rancor man and uh, Pentagon man, and sort of an intelligence analyst. And you you do see a pattern with people like him, who he was also friends with, uh, Shabigny Brzezinski, Henry Kissinger, Huntington. He's actually a student of Huntington, but a very similar life pattern to Huntington. Rumsfeld. Uh, a lot of these guys uh, started out as sort of think tank analysts, academics, or both, and eventually moved into uh, private intelligence, and then eventually moved into the government, and then back out of the government. And then they played a role in the government, uh, sort of parallel to the government, what I call more of an advisory role of sorts, sort of the uh, a non-formalized think tank role. But he charted this course for a long time. He was particularly well involved in the anti-communist uh, movements within the Reagan administration. Uh, and his whole modus operandi for about 10 years was really finding ways to break down the Soviet Union. And break it down, they did. Eventually, he goes on to uh, form while he's writing uh, uh, his sort of magnum opus, I guess we would call it, which is the end of history. Uh, he is playing a major role in the formation of the neoconservative scene. So in the late 90s, he was involved with PNAC, which we've talked about before as well, Project for a New American Century. Um, even a lot of you sort of uh, people that have only lightly dipped your toes into, uh, I guess, 
dissident politics or deep politics have heard of PNAC. It's sort of entry-level 9-11 or W territory. But he was involved with that. And, and throughout the 90s and early 90s, with the fall of the Soviet Union, he was involved particularly in building up these sort of journalistic and academic integrity of the, of, of the neoconservative movement, I should say. Because with the, with the Cold War over and the Soviet Union dead, he had nowhere to really turn his talents. So he was involved with the CFR. He was involved with the Trilateral Commission. Um, he built out uh, the uh, national interest for a long time, although I believe he eventually uh, split with them and became part of the American interest. Uh, uh, you know, became part of the Carnegie Endowment. He was on uh, the board of directors for, for NED. He you know, he became a, what we, I guess we'd call a system operator. Uh, he was a, you know, member of um, uh, the American Association for Slavic Studies. He sort of all over the place. And eventually he puts out this book, The Last Man, or The End of History and The Last Man. And I was curious, you know, who published this book? Um, and it's actually a publisher that no longer exists. So there was a there was a company called Free Press that uh, was in operation for sixty years or so. Before it was purchased by Simon and Schuster, as many small publishers in the United States were, as part of the, sort of the big publisher consolidation movements of the '90s and two, early 2000s. Uh, we've kind of I think wound up with two or three primary publishers uh, across the United States. Uh, but Free Press was this interesting little publishing outfit that started as a project of a, a Chicago businessman partnering with a, uh, a man named Charles Liebman, who was a, uh, one of the big movers and shakers at the ACLU. They created Free Press primarily as is, I think, originally a sort of center-left uh, sociological uh, publisher. So, for example, they were very interested in publishing uh, Max Weber material or uh, Emil uh, Durkheim or uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, uh, Valerie Webb, uh, Ernest Becker, these, these sorts of people. But eventually they, they became close with Alan Bloom and they became close with other neoconservatives. Um, and then they were publishing uh, sort of business books or economic books starting in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and then they publish straight neoconservative propaganda uh, for years, including um, Fukuyama's book. And this was uh, you know, very associated with the Chicago neoconservative movement, which is you know, sort of that same movement that uh, Fukuyama has been involved with for years. Ironically, um, Fukuyama is from Chicago. Uh, his father uh, went to University of Chicago. Fukuyama himself uh, did not actually attend Chicago University. Unlike a lot of the people that he ended up working with very closely uh, and sort of his ideological counterparts, he himself was not personally 
associated with Chicago University or that specific group early on. He was sort of this outsider um, from sort of the, the East Coast or you know New England school establishments um, that had sort of been welcomed into the fold. But welcomed into the fold he was, and he became sort of this diehard neoconservative. Um, and as Nick said, he, uh, you know, think of him what you will, uh, I don't have a very high opinion of him, but he uh, stuck to his guns. Uh, and he did it in a way that was not slimy or um, cynical, uh, the way that perhaps Krautheimer or Pearl or uh, the most obvious case would be Bill Crystal did. I think Fukuyama tried at many points to provide perhaps the most intellectual arguments for neoconservative and why he personally stuck with neoconservatism, and he did admit uh, a lot of its faults. Uh, he also had a tendency to say things that uh, were very outside the realm for other neoconservatives. So I think, for example, he at one point called um, what you know. What the U.S. is doing with the war on terror, he called it an, an Israeli mindset or something like that, and he said it in a in a bad way. Yeah, it yeah was bingo. Yeah, he framed it as you know the United States is is, is are behave is behaving like a hyper nationalist Israeli uh, military power or something like that. Now, uh, of course, what he's also trying to get across in the subtext of his of those. Of, that position positions like that is that he is you know an anti-nationalist effectively uh, and he is you know for this sort of uh, market market commons and, and market harmonization of the world and sort of an internationalist market perspective on things uh, i would say make no mistake his whole life has been about um, building up the systems and you know uh, kind of putting away any competitors to the system that his backers and his mentors wanted to create. Um, and it, I think it is interesting that the book he wrote, his most infamous book, uh, while sort of lamenting, I think, uh, the fate of the world under the system, he he doesn't necessarily he isn't absolved of blame in creating it, I would say. And in fact, it is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. He worked very hard to bring this system about. Um, and I always thought it was strange he wrote in an almost lamentable way uh, or lamenting way uh, about it after the fact. Um, but given you know the, the, the nature of uh, Free Press, the publisher that put it out, um, it does fit with their general repertoire of, you know, sort of scientific economic management, economic textbooks, business textbooks, sociological textbooks. These are, these are what think tank people and uh, academic economists and um, these sorts of types read. You know, senior policy planners, and it was in a way, I think. Uh, you know, getting the warning out or the telegram out that uh, uh, this is what we're intending to do. This is the world that we're trying to create. And um, here's how I'm going to describe it to you and, and how it's going to play out. Yeah, I, I appreciate that context, Hans. That's, 
I mean, it speaks to what I said earlier too, that I, I think there's evidence for both, both takes on Fukuyama, the man, whether this is the work of a cynical operator or a true believer, you know, in the cause of liberal democracy, if you will. And I think there's evidence for, for both points. I mean, is Hans laid out his associations. I mean, he's well connected in elite circles and in the formation of the big Jewish power clique that dominated American foreign policy um, ever since, I mean, for the past couple of decades. But he did break with them on certain uh, certain points. And as for the text itself, I don't really think it is that important, whichever assessment you come down on as to Fukuyama the man, as to what his motivations are, because the result is ultimately the same, because whether he really is a believer in this, he, the point is, is that like, this is what he has to present. This is the, this is the rationale for the American system. And this is his best attempt at trying to give it essentially philosophical, historical account of why American liberal capitalist democracy is the final development of the historical process. Right. And I think that he is so particularly... That, oh, if you have more to add, Hans, go ahead. Yeah, well, I would just to add to that, I would say that he particularly is an artifact of fusionism, which was the, uh, the now failed ideology of you know combining neoconservative foreign policy with um, elements of you know, evangelical moral majority talking points and free trader market capitalism I just so just to clarify as to neoconservatism I mean the easiest way to understand it is that it it was it just in terms of a analysis of of class and power i mean it's it was a jewish clique it's as simple as that and the way that they marketed it it was as hans was describing they they tried to uh, align their desire their basically zionist geopolitical agenda with the cultural the cultural right in America, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly through things like the evangelical churches, uh, that's that was a big power block for that led to you know, the Bush administration. And, and I think and for Fukuyama personally, that, moment, that, that played a role in his life. I mean, I think his father was big into maybe in his American, life and evangelicalism, and and he you know he make. wrote a lot of the stuff he wrote you know real, had all these uh, callbacks to sort of. Uh, you know, generic evangelical uh, support for uh, democracy and stuff like this. I mean, he wrote this book in 2002, you know, about how biotechnology was going to undermine sort of the, the social underpinnings of America. It was called our post-human future. And he, you know, he was, I think, really defining the, he, what he wanted to do was define the cultural characteristics of the American right, as you said, and the, he approached it in this way of of using that fusionist perspective to keep it on the rails. I think, as he would see it. Now, the other cynical way of interpreting a lot of what he was doing was 
he was making he was building a cultural uh, framework for a broad spectrum political movement to support sort of maybe not just uh, certain Zionist actors, uh, which is true of neoconservatism in general, but I think he was also doing it on behalf of sort of the American economic strategies of the 90s and early 2000s, of which there were many, from NAFTA to the, you know, to the seizure of global oil networks, you know, uh, this is what Engdahl has written extensively about, but, you know, it was basically building a cultural political cover for national economic strategy. Uh, Yeah. And again, that that was his role, that was his role as, as a sort of as a Sovietologist, and it just evolved into, you know, what is the current American national economic strategy and how do I fuse that with what we are attempting to do? So, you know, in the 90s, it was neoliberalism and global trade and technology is going to sort of be the great equalizer. In the early 2000s, it became militaristic anti-terror and global energy production strategy. And, you know, the neoconservatism became much more aggressive and almost fused with sort of uh, some kind of uh, uh, sort of mangled Christian evangelicalism. And uh, and now, you know, it's actually interesting seeing him now. He's morphed into a, uh, I think he's a sellout now, but he's morphed into a sort of banal, um, uh, you know, center-left liberal Democrat just to be with with certain elements I don't of, know how much of neoconservatism a, in order to support the, like, the current I, system. I I don't okay. So to clarify, uh, I'm talking about like the cultural dimensions of neoconservatism, and that's the appeal to the American right. Uh, that's not I, I that's not Fukuyama. Um, that's he was associated, yes, the fellow travelers, and that's the circle he operated in. But in no way is this book a right wing book or a you know uh, a cookie to the right wing. It's not that at all. It's it's definitely much more a liberal capitalist democracy. Is that's what he says, and that's what it's about. The extent to which he was associated with the right really only makes sense in a Cold War context, namely that he was pro-capitalist, anti-Soviet Union. And that's that's probably where that association ended up coming from, is he was uh, he was on tangentially on the right in that sense. But there were plenty of, you know, liberal Democrats who were the same way. I mean, it's it's not that's a very broad picture of the American right. This book is very much a uh, I, I don't think Fukuyama today is really any different than the Fukuyama in this book. I, I think it's it's consistent. I think he's I think he's more or less intellectually consistent, despite having to, to sort of go back and walk back some of his predictions just based on the events that have taken place since the end of the Cold War. Uh, Hans, do you have anything further to add biographically as far as context goes before we jump into the book as the book, his ideas? No, I think uh, I think that that provides sort of enough high level context for uh, 
for the man himself and what I, you know, some, some of the background that uh, goes into. Yeah. Book. Uh, I, I think so. I think, I think that's, that's good context. Uh, Adam, do you have anything you want to say before we jump into the meat of this? No, no. Uh, let's, let's do it. Okay. The end of history. So, this is obviously Hegelian. Um, he does not mean the end of history as in the end of events, right? He means the end of history from the perspective of a Hegelian dialectic, namely that uh, there exists, I don't want to get too deep in the rabbit hole in this, but the idea being that there exists at any at a given, history is a process of development. And that process of development leads to what are essentially false consciousness of being in the context of history, uh, of awareness of the self. And those false consciousnesses have to collapse because they're false consciousnesses, namely they have internal contradictions. And as those collapse and there's a procession from there on to another form that is you know, a synthesis of previous form that itself has also to collapse and onward and onward until you arrive at a final endpoint, the end of history. So the the final form of historical consciousness this is no longer historical consciousness. The final form of consciousness that then allows for the last form of man in that the organization this is it's a based on a universal history right this is not a it's not a relative or particular history it's a universal history of humanity humanity being the subject here and so he is in many respects i mean he's not the first one to do this either like as far as proclaiming the end of history uh, alexander kojev did so uh, in like i suppose it was the 50s and 60s and the, the intellect, that's a lot of deep, deep waters as far as you can get into. I mean, he was taught by Strauss and is a Hegelian. And it, I, I don't know if we need to belabor the point too much, but the idea, I mean, you could laugh at it. Like, I think to somebody who isn't familiar with the ideas where this is historical, this is philosophy of history. This is not just like, oh, okay, like nothing will ever happen again. He did not mean that. And so I, there's, I guess, a basic misinterpretation that is available to somebody. And, uh, we can brush that aside. He's he's talking in a very specific context. And his end of history is really not altogether very different than the uh, Soviet end of history in the formation of the Soviet man. It was the final, the final system. Eventually, you know, you arrive at effectively post-scarcity and post-class, and you have a large degree of individual freedom is the idea. And this is a subject I would like to continue, I will continue to come back to, namely the interesting parallels uh, between the Americanist and the Soviet uh, visions of man and history. Uh, this is something that uh, Thomas Lasunik, who has been on the program in the past, has written about it in his book, Homo Americanus, which is a very uh, good perspective. Also, I believe he wrote that not 
he wrote that at a similar time, I think, that Fukuyama published his book. And uh, coming from where he did, experience of Soviet communism, it you, someone like Sunik is very unimpressed by Fukuyama, and with good reason, because it's just the same bullshit he had been hearing from communists. It's like, oh, so the Americans and the communists, they really are mere images of each other. Uh, and that that's true on so many fundamental levels. And the thing is, you can attack Fukuyama uh, and his ideas from so many different perspectives. I mean, you could attack him from a Marxist perspective, a sort of traditionalist or reactionary perspective, a national socialist or you know, state socialist perspective, an anarchist perspective, an Islamist perspective. I mean, you name it. It's American imperialism has made a lot of enemies and the fundamental ideology is hostile to everything else because that's, I mean, that's the nature of a, of a given worldview for the most part, despite the fact that it makes a lot of claims towards uh, tolerance and plurality, et cetera. Um, would you like to comment, Adam or Hans, on just the, the basic the basic thesis? I, I'll restate it. Uh, so the basic thesis is that uh, historical development, uh, the process of historical development, has terminated in the, its final form, which is specifically capitalist liberal democracy, as best expressed by uh, Western, particularly American, uh, system. I mean, did he really believe that? Like, I, I get it's sort of like a, it's a good publisher's like marketing ploy to like make these grand claims on a book title, but it, it it's not incorrect in the sense that if this is what he actually meant, that it was an end of an era, but literally the end of all historical processes come to a halt on December 1991 or whenever the hell the Kremlin uh, took its flag down uh, is absurd. I mean, we've gone through phases of political change, grand political change, and that was definitely one of them um, in history over the centuries, but it always cycles. It, it, it's, it's never been we have one system uh, forever. I mean, it, it, it constantly fluctuates. So I, I don't know if he really believed this stuff. Now, as you mentioned, this book often cited, uh, infrequently read, uh, I put myself in that category. I have not read it. Um, mainly because the, the title of itself it strikes me as silly. Um, and I, I don't take somebody who makes these simplistic statements <laughs> yeah, that seriously. That's so the point I, I was trying to address actually. <laughs> your reaction adam uh but to uh, i want to be fair to him he's coming from a yes it's there's a certain element of absurdity to believe because of where we're coming from and our perspective on the american system uh, but if i mean given if you take people is it is it hard to believe how many times put it this way how many times in your life have you heard both both from uh, American leftists and American right wingers that this is uh, the, the American right wing most important to election ever know about it and they'll say well they'll say this is the best system ever created 
whereas the <laughs> yeah. American leftist will say there's a lot of problems in America, but there is no superior alternative. Oh, okay, I've my never heard point them say is that. that. He's giving a theoretical. <laughs> he's giving. Say what? I've never heard a leftist really say anything approaching that level of praise for the United States. I, they're always deriding this country. Uh, no, no, that's, no, it's not necessarily. I oh, mean, yeah, like a, no, no, a, just, a 1960s like leftist might talk that way, that. but the people that I grew up no, with, no, 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 Paul, like, no, 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 plenty. Read the New York Times. Okay, this but they're they're kind of old. They're they're older. They're older guys. I'm talking about this this latest. Okay, anyway, we we don't have to debate this. Go ahead, that's fine. It wasn't the Adam. I'm not talking. I'm not talking about like the 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 like militant. Uh, I mean, again, because uh, Marxist Leninists, anarchists, even if those are pretensions for just, you know, Jewish uh, and degenerate mm. uh, pervert mob violence, et cetera. Yeah. It's not about what like Antifa thinks. OK, sure. sure We're talking sure, sure. about what system intellectuals and uh, white collar Democrat voting, college educated uh, managerial class would say. That's what they'd say. They will defend the American system. Yeah, they I think I think the middle class uh types that that have been given a sinecure job as hans pointed out earlier uh will defend it because i think they they know where their their bread is buttered uh <laughs> to view it very cynically but um it, it it's very conditional i don't think it's just and, the cynical they, uh, you, I, yeah. I think go ahead well, okay. I so think of I'll what I think of the way the, the people American, in the sixties talked. Left. People like uh, Alinsky, um, how they viewed the United States. They viewed it as some kind of corrosive, racist, imperialist entity, and they'd never shut up about it. Oh, Vietnam! Look at this! And oh, how racist! And it's just like. Uh, I, I get what you're saying, but they, that seems to be more recent where it's sort of like they've they've assumed the, the reins of power and now they're sort of trying to like retcon the, the whole like American project as like this like anti-racist project and they're the sort of end of history of it and that's the result of America. I, I don't know. It's very confused, but uh, I guess that's the point of the show. It's like this whole mess is very confusing. <laughs> so... It's very confusing. I'll, I will, I will grant you that. I, I think you overstate. You're right that they there was a radicalism in the 1960s, but also those people went on to become the managers of the system. I mean, it's right. They're, they're Obama now. I, I think that <laughs> it's like I mean, yeah, yeah look I at us. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, exactly. And they're not as. Ultimately, they always betray the radicalism because they ultimately do not disagree with the fundamental premise. They just wanted certain things to happen now. They wanted, you know, they didn't want actual racial equality. They wanted racial integration immediately, et cetera. You know, that's whereas, I mean, and this is the problem with American conservatives. I mean, what does an American conservative believe? They they essentially like, I'll give you the worst caricature of what they believe. They essentially think, well, I don't know, uh, Jesus Christ and Thomas Jefferson got together. They did America, and this was the first event in time, and they created 
the greatest system ever on the those founders were geniuses the system there was you know there were still some issues in the system so yahweh had to send abraham lincoln and mlk to end slavery and forcibly integrate the schools and uh, something about like women voting you know i mean it's the american conservative the, the, the reason they're a cartoon character then probably the most politically confused creature uh, in the english-speaking world i mean maybe there's some competition down under but for the most part i think they take the cake it's uh, they're they have no concept of history they their their idea of history they try to make they, they try to draw a continuous line from their pet beliefs in the current year to you know 1776 and they miss all of, i mean american history is actually very rich there is American history, but Americans themselves don't live in American history. You know, they're they're not they're not a part of it. What do you, what do you mean by that? Like, it, which is what it means to be a part. Who who would be living in history, uh, in your view? Uh, uh, people who. I'm just trying to understand. In the same just city or town as their ancestors before them. Oh, I mean, okay. look to Europe is a good example. Look to the Islamic world, even. Uh, look even to parts of Asia. I mean, it's American is the American society, or as Francis Fukuyama would say, consumer civilization, uh, or as Sunik would say, Homo Americanus. Uh, Homo Americanus is the subject of the reason. That is Fukuyama's last man is Homo Americanus. It's the economic man. It's man who doesn't, who has first and foremost an economic understanding of life, rather than one based in an organic identity that is a part of history, that is a part of the past and a part of the future. That they themselves are a link between the ages, between that they're the and it's based in some some extent on blood, uh, or in maybe others purely on tradition. Uh, you have a like a non-racial religious sort of worldview. I mean, even still, that's based in a in a in a historical traditional mindset. So I, America I, is an I, I, I get the impression form. that he would be for free markets. Um, I'm I'm not as again as as like a non-reader of his actual work. I absolutely don't don't have much to uh, to really uh, critique one way or the other. But I'm I'm also curious how much his uh, view of the world as it should be extends also into political freedom not just economic i would imagine it does a little bit at least in the sense that you know he believes in i i don't know free speech for example i mean does he think that's important uh is, or is it just about being able to trade derivatives 24 yes. 7 uh on every continent uh from any trading terminal question. i mean yeah that's it that's a good question so uh that's a good that's actually a good place to to let's discuss it because so he so back to the internal contradictions and false consciousness, like he would ask the question because, I mean, it would be irresponsible of him not to ask the question, well, are there contradictions in a capitalist liberal democracy? Uh, he does not provide a satisfying answer, but he at least he at least tries. Uh, I want to try to provide a satisfying answer, though. So let's let's discuss these ideas uh, because he does he hits on some of it as far as. So these are three different ideas, capitalism, 
liberalism and democracy. And it's funny to ask if there's contradictions between them, because on the surface, there's contradictions between all three of those things. Namely, they're not, not only are they not, not, not only <laughs> Absolutely, are they not necessarily there are contradictions. part yeah. of each other, they are, they have been at certain times opposed, and none of those concepts are predicated on the other. So, for example, can you have capitalism without liberalism and democracy? Absolutely, you can. Absolutely. Look at, like, Singapore. Yeah. You can have an authoritarian capitalist state where, you know, that you you absolutely should not question the validity of uh, multinational corporations. And also, <laughs> That's right. Like, if you look like a hippie, you're probably going to jail. And chewing gum. And yeah. you, maybe you'll be executed for spitting on the street. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and by the way, Fukuyama makes that point. I mean, so he's not he's not oblivious to that, that yes, you can have capitalism without liberalism and democracy. Uh, democracy? I, I, let's do liberalism, okay? Liberalism, this is a very complicated subject. Um, I will do my best, uh, but liberalism is not an easy thing to understand. It, I mean, it, and it gets thrown around so much in America uh, and it's just, it's, it's really pathetic, really. It's, but it's not entirely the fault of like American retardation and ignorance. It's actually is just a complicated idea because the historical legacy of liberalism, it, liberalism is a negative, it's a negative philosophy, right? It really isn't a pot. There's no substantive positive claim to liberalism. It is at its root, a negation. And as such, liberals have found themselves associated with, or rather liberalism has been associated with almost every conceivable political struggle. Uh, typically, if, it's a, if it's, there's a liberal association to it, then there's something a little bit tepid about it as well. You know, there's no such thing as like a full-throated uh, you know, communist or socialist or revolutionary or nationalist or whatever. That it is also, well, I mean, there there are liberals attached to these things, but you know, the diehard, the true believers in the in the political struggle, whatever that struggle may be, are never going to be liberals. Liberals, however, may be associated with them. So you've had, you know, monarchist liberals, uh, you've had socialist liberals, you've had. Uh, conservative liberals, I mean, you name it, like there's always been liberalism has taken many different forms and had many different meanings over its, you know, couple hundred years of existence. Uh, the classical liberals, for example, they um, you have to this day, there's some kind of, you know, you have like libertarians who try to prop up a very like, you know, 19th century sort of conception of liberalism. You see it, I think, also from people like uh, the Kermit the Frog guy, um, uh, 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 Jordan Peterson. I know that I think he probably claims to be like a classical liberal. That guy's a hack. I'm and sorry. There's some. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course, there's some measure of consistency to liberalism. If like you take it from that tradition, if you take it from the like 19th century English liberal tradition, there is some consistency, but things get very murky when you move that into the 20th century. I mean, 
at the very least, it's sort of the belief in a separate uh, private sphere outside of the state and outside of, you know, the church or whatever, whatever authority, whatever hierarchical authority it may be. I mean, usually these are maybe one and the same. You have the traditional throne and altar or whatever. It's, you know, like Iran today is non-liberal in the sense that there's no there you have the religion and the state and there's some measures of you know separation they have almost like a it's it is a it is an islamic republic that is true i don't want to get on attention on that but illiberalism or non-liberalism is is you can define it and negative definitions are always useful when you're dealing with liberalism because it's the deny liberalism is itself the denial of something right it's and it leads to, you know, it's about like common space that's like free of, uh, you know, civil society, if you will, right? This is maybe the most like charitable definition of liberalism, uh, but it, it's not easy. So, so I, I had a, ahead, a, a preliminary understanding of at least the difference between uh, liberalism and another alternative, and I'm sure there's many more than. Uh, one other way, obviously, um, I would hope. And it was actually from that, I think an article you mentioned, it was on UNS, I think it's called The Return to History. Uh, I, I kind of skimmed it, but what I was sort of uh, intrigued by was the definitions and the definition of liberalism, to me, seemed fairly well characterized by a belief that individuals have inalienable rights to, you know, we call them human rights, I guess, after World War II, but certain certain things that they are endowed by their very existence, not by their virtues, not by their strength or inherent characteristics, but just by the fact that they exist. So if you, if you breathe and you haven't been aborted by your liberal mother or something, ironically, um, then you are endowed with these rights, being whatever the f you know people want to give to these people or uh, individuals, but it's uh, as opposed to what this article was saying was like the realist school of politics, which is basically might is right. So power effectively is what defines uh, the transactions between people, as opposed to. Well, you have rights in a court by your citizenship status or something, and the judge will give you certain uh, allowances just by you know the fact that you you breathe air. Uh, versus again, the the guy who's got the biggest uh, biggest gun or the most money or something uh, of of power uh, has the most power. Uh, I think that's for me, a good way to sort of distinguish between, I think, what a, a liberal and an anti-liberal is. A monarchist, for example, which isn't necessarily the opposite, but I think it is different in the sense that the monarchist sees a definite hierarchy to society flowing, obviously, down from the royals down through the subsequent levels of status and hierarchy to the lower peoples. And I think a liberal would view Ooh. everybody as inherently at least starting out as equal and then maybe by you can add on to this, but I guess, you know, yeah. by their actions and by it's, the sort of merits, then they, they sort of go from there. Yeah. 
pra- practically speaking, as it's not it's not terrible. I mean, it's, you get you get a lot right there. But the problem is, I mean, to just continue to make this complicated, um, it's not necessary. Like, if you consider, for example, English liberty, that's not by virtue of being born. It's by virtue of being born an Englishman, right? So you can have. Uh, liberal nationalism in that sense, where these are there is a you know public space where everyone is afforded a certain protection of the law equally, et cetera, the commons, but that that's because you're a member of the group, that you're a member of you know you're a citizen or subject or what whatever. That there there can be a more narrow like liberalism, it has become yes very universalist in application. And there's always going, there always has been an element of universalism to the theory, uh, but in application that it just has not always been the case. I mean, it's been um, more narrow in scope throughout its history, depending on the circumstances in which it emerged. So my point is that it's difficult to find a continuous thread as to what liberalism is, but what it's easy enough to give a general explanation of it in the context of a negative critique of a total of a total power or a total organic holistic society. Um, so, you know, it does reject, broadly speaking, it's going to reject the idea of uh, organic forms that are collective in nature rather than individual. It does it is going to place a primacy on the individual. Yeah, individualism is bound up with liberalism. That's a generally coherent thread. Yeah. Um, it, there's it, a lot of ways it to does sort get of frame to the it. Point. I mean, there's sure. contradictions already into liberalism when you start then talking about humanity, though, because humanity then is now you refer to humanity as this sort of collective entity. I mean, they mean it in a quantitative sense, namely it's the sum total of all of all individual actors. So it's like a shorthand for just like all of the things added up and put into a big bucket. But it tends towards other things as well. There's the tendencies that it rejects. Quant, that's another one that's been used by uh, certain writers to make the distinction between liberalism and often this is referred to in the context of modernism as well namely it's a quantitative rather than qualitative distinction and that by taking your basis as a sort of assumed equality uh, you end up with a uh, assessment in terms of quantity rather than quality so you know ideas like honor and obligation and duty are uh, subsumed by a sort of a essentially an economic understanding and this is why liberalism and capitalism are the have the the least conflict uh in that in this whole arrangement between li- of liberal capitalist democracy uh, liberalism and capitalism definitely do go hand in glove for the most part i mean there are exceptions uh in east asia for example and you know in um uh uh chile under uh uh, the Chicago boys, uh, Pinochet, right? Uh, there's a sort of authoritarian capitalism, right? That's, it's hap- like, they're not necessarily going to follow from one to the other, but definitely in the expression of the big hegemon of the 20th century, uh, liberalism and capitalism have been associated, which brings to a bit of an issue, uh, which is that because of the primacy that's placed on sort of the economic 
of a tendency among uh, amongst liberals is to deny the political right they deny they put the my i think they that's if i had to like do a simplest definition of liberalism uh, without getting too much into historical context, I would say li- liberalism is basically the belief that uh, the economy is to be held above the political, that it's uh, that it's primary, and the political is is a secondary consideration. Wouldn't you say that's what capitalism is, economic. though? Again, this is why it's complicated. But no, I wouldn't say that's what capitalism is, is because uh, you could have. It, you could have cap, capitalism where it's it could you could it could be political and also have capitalism because you could, you could basically have like take for example like a neo feudalism right where Mold it's bug. capitalist <laughs> in the sense that there's like a specific yeah right exactly no 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 those people yeah no they're a good example of that the neo reactionary types uh, they do adhere to a sort of um, it would be a political idea in the sense that they would, you know, there would be enmity with uh, outside with outside interests. Uh, it would be like a specific fiefdom, and there would be like a specific lord who exercises maybe a foreign policy of his own, and you know, it 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 is possible, and maybe it is some like kind of nightmare Nickland future that we're going to um, end up with. That's actually conceivable, really. I don't see why not, but yeah. Well, they gotta they gotta anyways, fix, Ur- fix Urbit first. I wanted to. <laughs> what a god awful looking system. <laughs> I I want to point out that like li- liberalism, this says this about itself though, but it's not really true. Right. This is the problem is because by being a liberal state and by exercising you exercise, you're exercising power, you know, you're doing things like you have a foreign policy, uh, you have you manage you have a, a, a subjects to manage, even though they deny it subjects because everyone's, you know, an equal citizen or whatever. But ultimately, liberalism ends up. And this is why you can have liberal imperialism. I mean, it's the claims that liberals make are they're mostly just fanciful i mean it's they're not they're they're still subject they still act like a state they still act like a power because that's what they what they are uh and to that end i actually there's a good um i'll I'll quote uh, francis parker yaki on that and i'll say that uh, quote uh, thus liberalism in action was just as political as any state ever was it obeyed organic necessity by its political alliances with non-liberal groups and ideas Despite its theory of individualism, which, of course, would preclude the possibility that one man or group could call upon another man or group for the sacrifice or risk of life, it supported unfree ideas like democracy, socialism, Bolshevism, anarchism, all of which demand life sacrifice. And this is, a, I think that's very well said, and this is an issue that uh, Pugiyama runs into in a major way, actually, uh, because he tries for a while to give a purely economic account of everything. And in that sense, you know, he, what he's trying to do is, uh, I'll hold off on that, actually, before I go down that road. I wanted to make a few more points about liberalism as far as its contradictions. Um, I think one of the most obvious contradictions 
And it's funny that I think I'll begin my free gamma quotes here because I, this will be my first free gamma quote. Anyway, sorry. Uh, liberalism, this is uh, the, the writer, uh, what is his name? Um, uh, Eric, uh, oh God, what? He, was, he was a, um, he was himself a liberal. Uh, Ladin, he was a German. Uh, uh, fuck, he was a Vaughn. Whatever, man. Point is, is one basic contradiction that has always been present in liberalism, especially now that the you know various alien distortions uh, have taken place in the 20th century, is the question of uh, uh, liberty or freedom and equality. And this is a problem that you see. This comes up today a lot, which is that. It's the difference between, I guess you would say, um, uh, formal equality and sub substantive equality, if you will. Namely, that if you take the premise that all are equal under the law, and that that's the extent of our egalitarianism, which is what various classical liberals will say, libertarians will say this, at least the like more kind of like hardcore libertarians who would oppose even like the Civil Rights Act which those are few in number these days, if they exist at all. Uh, but in a free, in a, a society of like free associations and property rights or whatever, uh, that whatever inequality manifested out of this, well, it's the free market, you know, it's, it's freedom expressing itself. And what will happen is what we all know will happen, which is, for example, the natural inequalities among the races will emerge in very stark contrast. You dig? Is that a rhetorical question? No, it was an actual question. You dig? You see? Do you, do you follow my point? Um. Yeah. No, I I follow. Yeah. Okay. So let's um, let's see what Fukuyama has to say about this, because he actually does address this point. So I have it in my notes. Uh, again, I, I apologize. I have like two or three different notebooks that I'm going back and forth to try and remind myself of the content that I would like to cover today. But, well, I, I uh, hope one day if, uh, so if we ever reach here, that, that stage, if there's enough interest, we could sell limited edition copies of his uh, coffee-stained notebooks to uh, the highest bidders, although I don't know if that's too capitalist or liberal or democratic uh, for this particular episode. To... It would be, it, I, I, I don't know, man, it would, be, it would be kind of like some Necronomicon shit, like you would become a <laughs> schizophrenic or something if you tried to read them. Like you would, you would never go, be going back. <laughs> I've, I've had people pick up my notes before, especially like friends of mine that are uh, not really like political or whatever, and they're just like they've they've been, they've said some things to me. I mean, it's like little uh, little doodles, with, you know, little ten wheel doodles, and like why is why do you have like Jew triple underlined? What does that mean? <laughs> well, here it says uh, liberalism inequality in the Negro problem. That's not what Fukuyama wrote, but as mine is in my notes. So <clears throat> this is what Fukuyama says uh, addressing what I just brought up, namely. Begin quote. Uh, Moreover, even American democracy has not been particularly successful in solving its most persistent ethnic problem, that of American blacks. Black <laughs> slavery constitute the major exception to the general 
PlayStation. I know, right? <laughs> I laughed, dude. All right, sorry. Black, black slavery constituted the major exception to the generalization that Americans were, quote, born equal. And American democracy could not, in fact, settle the question of slavery through democratic means. This is a major admission. Uh, long after the abolition of slavery, long indeed after the achievement of full legal equality by American blacks, many remain profoundly alienated from the mainstream of American culture. Given the profoundly cultural nature of the problem, on the side both of blacks and whites, it is not clear that American democracy is really capable of doing what would be necessary to assimilate blacks fully and to move from formal equality of opportunity to a broader equality of condition. Liberally, liberal democracy may be more functional for a society that has already achieved a high degree of social equality concerning certain basic values. But for societies that are highly polarized along the lines of social class, nationality, or religion, democracy can be a formula for stalemate and stagnation. Absolutely incredible admission. Because you could apply, you could apply that same logic to uh, industrialization um, and class in uh, post post communist countries or third world countries, you could say, for example, that this the system that Fukuyama is advocating for um, may not be applicable to places in which like deep divisions exist. Um, which he also acknowledge like he digs some holes for himself, uh, and it's kind of incredible some of the things that he'll admit. Uh, it's I was surprised a few times around, to be honest. Uh, but that's my so 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 that's kind of an interesting like thought arc that he puts himself on because on one hand you know the the sort of distinction between a slave and a freeman is kind of obvious and it's like if you're a liberal i guess you would be anti-slavery but how far does that extend once that man has been freed does that extend into economic equality I guess, political equality. I mean, obviously, like, Jim Crow is, like, sort of uh, on the surface of it very kind of uh, slanted politically. But take today where, you know, affirmative action aside, I mean, you have a lot of sort of uh, implicit affirmative action, if not explicit. And politically, we do have a relatively even playing field. Yet the results are still as one would expect if you understand a little bit of human biodiversity. Is that how far he's taking this? I mean, as sort of a Japanese-American, I guess, he probably knows that there's some IQ differences going on here. But does he expect liberalism to deliver equal economic results with a vastly different set of people in that system or is he just like saying that liberalism didn't or democracy didn't deliver uh the freeing of the slaves i mean do you know what i'm asking like how far does this uh expectation for liberalism delivering the goods go he's essentially suggesting that his prize system uh, may not be up to the task of creating the equality that is natural to humankind uh, but it's an aside it's it's a little aside it's it's kind of it's a very strange little admission uh, because you would think that it would say well no just it's 
probably just needs a little bit more time. Like the system will work. Wait, he thinks quality yeah, is natural. I don't natural? want to too far on. Is that what he? That, that, he's a yeah, you know he's yeah, that, absolutely. Oh the nat, it's the natural state of man. Yeah, that, the only difference is in he'll you know if you ask what what he'll tell you is that like well the big one of the big things is education and stuff. So yeah, I mean probably have you need them programs to make sure that everyone's yep. up to the same kind well, of more educational. late night basketball programs. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so typical liberal shit, dude. And, and yeah, yeah. Gangs, no, yeah. It's it, there's no surprises here to anyone. I mean, and this is like this is again sort of the. The nature of the divide between the political spectrum in America, where you have, like, the on the what you call the American left, um, you know, they believe in uh, you know total elevation of the American Negro. That like you should be like, I don't know, feeding your children to them or something. And the American right, like, they just think that you know it was great when like like we achieved the. And the American conservative movement achieved all it needed to achieve in that minor blip on the glory of 1776 when Republican Martin Luther King uh, came and he's uh, uh, solved the race problem. <laughs> you know, it's not serious. I mean, like, dude, you can never have a serious conversation like with everyone dances around and stuff like Negroes are a good a good like key wrench into the American system. I, th I think it's actually there in a certain sense. I mean, they're not, it's not like worth it as far as a trade off, but they do a good job though, of, of really demonstrating the internal to speak in his terms, the internal contradictions in the system. Uh, they really do. Hey man, so I think, I think we've definitely reached the end of some kind of history when we, uh, we <laughs> see a black man jumping up to, defend his uh unfaithful wife uh slapping another black man who's hosting the award show for the culture makers oh of this God. country to then go on and receive the highest award of that culture uh culture show uh and then be talked about ad, ad nauseum by uh bored white housewives for the next month that's the end of something americans and i mean americans really lack a sense of the tragic um, and that's because they lack a sense of history. Uh, those two things are related, but uh, I digress a little bit. I, I, I'll sum up. Uh, so with respect to liberalism, I just want to say that we could spend, I mean, we've already spent some time. I could spend a long time talking about this subject, but just in brief, like if we give a bird's eye view, if you will, of the, the historical legacy of liberalism, well, I mean, it was blood soaked from the beginning and consider the French Revolution. Uh, it presided over slavery, usury, exploitation. Uh, it allowed for a legal protection for antisocial, predatory, subversive activities, uh, all given the sanction of law, uh, feminism, and the destruction of organic community, the bonds of blood and people, basically replaced by entirely economic relations. And when you look to the 20th century, the, I mean, the high watermark of liberalism uh, was when a country, uh, a liberal, a nominally liberal state that was descended from Europe, uh, the, the one that triumphed over the, the 20th century American power when it waged a war of extermination against Europe, against Germany, uh, torturing, starving, and slaughtering millions of Europeans. Um, and interestingly enough, it also presided over the terror bombing of Japan, 
the country of Francis Fukuyama's people, but people he does not identify with, despite being by blood Japanese man. Uh, so he, to his own people, they, they did this. And he, this is the system he defends, the one that, that murdered his people. This is who he sides with, because ultimately he sides with Judeo-Americanism. I mean, he's, at the end of the day, what he, what he really is is a Shabos guy. Uh, he's a he's a court or synagogue historian, if you will. So I, I find that very ironic. I mean, it's a legacy of, of liberalism for you. But um, the reason we got onto this tangent about liberalism was I, we're trying to address the fundamental question as to what internal contradictions exist between uh, it, within what he calls capitalist liberal democracy and what i'm trying to move towards is the fact that i don't think that this is the most useful term um, but we can also say a few words about democracy right uh, this comes back to a point that i was making on the program that we did regarding the events at tiananmen square uh, something that figures prominently in his book actually because he points to that, as, you know, it's one of those things he points to as a harbinger of like the organic democratic process that is um, on its way to fulfillment the world over, the universalization of uh, Americanism or the uh, universalization of capitalist liberal democracy. And, and he addresses this point as well, namely that, again, you can be democratic without being liberal or capitalist. Easy enough, right? I mean, they voted for Hitler. <laughs> Happy birthday, by the way, King. Um, the uh, point is, is that democracy is not necessarily liberal or capitalist. And democracy really, I mean, it's actually a real political idea. It's something that people are willing to, to fight and die for. Uh, and what it means in any given context is uh, certainly... Uh, up for his, his, you know, historical evaluation at any given point in time. But he would acknowledge as much that de uh, democratic power could be expressed in a way that is anti-liberal or anti-capitalist. And uh, China is a good expression of that. When those people were talking about Chinese democracy, they were not talking about American democracy. They were talking about something very different. So the point is, is that like you're already off to a bad start with your formulation as to the end of history being specifically liberal capitalist democracy. Uh, the other dances that he makes, for example, starting at the beginning of his work is he's describing the various events that are taking place here at the end of the Cold War and across, for example, the Latin American world or um, South Asia, uh, even Africa, Middle East, the world over. He's talking about these what are uh, they call democratic revolutions. And can you guess what never comes up? Tell us. American power and its relationship to these things. And th this is, I think, really the... This is on the big. This is also, I think, something that really sets him apart from the other, from the like the actual Jewish neoconservatism. Is he is a bit um, hesitant to talk about this in terms of American power, I, partly because keep in mind what he's doing is trying to formulate a universal history. Right? It's not 
the culmination of, of this is not in America. America is just the best representative of it. It's this is these are this is a process that like the rest of the world is going to have to go through as well. Uh, America is implicitly the best representation of it, but it's not. He'll never say that like the world needs to become America specifically because uh, it just so happens the North American it just so happens to be America. It's not. It's, a, it's just an accident of circumstance that the historical development led its. Uh, pinnacle to this place and time it, it it's not really that significant sort of uh just an accident you know, of history if you will so when he's talking about these developments in he's talking about it in this the term these terms are like this is the organic process taking shape never mentions the fact even though i'm sure considering the connections that he has as hans brought up at the beginning uh, he's well aware of CIA involvement in these countries and their so-called de democracy. So much so that, like, nowadays when you hear that stuff, it's just like this is a CIA talking point. When you talk about, like, we need to bring democracy to this country, it means that we need to be able to buy people off. And their state is standing, for whatever reason, this given state is standing in the way of us controlling it through international money power. And therefore, we need to kill people until we can gain control. Yeah, like I said earlier, it is it is very much a yeah. yeah go it's, ahead. It's, it's a very much a self fulfilling prophecy, and you're you are right in that one of the primary critiques of Fukuyama is that there is a uh, real um, purposeful ignorance of the intentional effects of the United States to create these outcomes. So he spends the entire, the, the entire breadth of uh, the work explaining this phenomena as though it is a, uh, a natural phenomena, as though it's physics or something. And, and he tries to chain it into a broad sociological context spanning thousands of years while ignoring you know the very intentional actions of the uh, powers that he is actively working with who have brought the, about the world called hegemon yeah who have brought about this phenomena uh, and so, you know, this is where you get into, is this just cynical or is he naive or, or is it a mix or what is it? But uh, there is this major issue in that you cannot remove um, these actors who aren't just from the United States, although a predominance of them are, and uh, their role in creating a system that he is then describing as its and its natural phenomena. It's it's very disjointed and, and it feels dishonest. Uh, additionally, I would say well, that I can explain. What, oh, go ahead. Please. Well, additionally, I would say that um, in particular, you know, you brought up the intelligence agency angle, and this is. Uh, a very common misconception amongst uh, a lot of people of various persuasions. The intelligence agencies of the United States and other nations and private intelligence groups that work for 
private interests and and so forth have uh, sort of created the system that we are experiencing now as Fukuyama laid it out as a strategic means of acquiring and distributing resources, influence, wealth, and very little of it was done necessarily out of uh, a profundity of good-natured intentions for uh, human dignity or something to that effect. And he totally misses this entirely. And so, again, you run into this issue of, is this all very cynical? Or is this purposefully ignorant? Or is this just naive? Uh, it's, it's very, it's hard to tell with, you know, particularly this point. Where he just, he just does not seem to understand or point out intentionality in creating a system. And instead, he sort of abstracts it to thousands of years of sort of nebulous historical process. I mean, that that right there is is incredibly Hegelian, but it is Hegelian in the most uh, sort of almost two-dimensional sense. And, and it's, it's very uh, difficult to take seriously on some level. Yes, I can give you my answer as to why he does this. And it's the same, along the same lines of like the initial question of naivete or cynicism, uh, to which I say it's, it doesn't matter, you have the same result. <clears throat> the reason he has to do it is because he has to do it. It's an intellectual, it's necessary intellectual uh, hole that he's dug for himself because the reason that he can't mention American power, and this comes back to the nature of liberalism, the goal is a depoliticized world. Like that's the end of history. It's the end of politics, right? So it's the end of an expression of politics. It's no the end enmity. of opposition. You have entirely, yeah. Well, it's 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 the end. It's an entirely liberal vision of a world in which all relationships are economic in nature. There is no that is the basis of all human existence, and it's the truth world over, and it'll be that way um, until geologic time comes to an end, because that's the final apotheosis of history. And the reason he mentioned American involvement and American power in directing these things and has to portray them as an organic uh, movement, because you're, when you bring in America, you're bringing in a specific historical power. And let's say that this specific historical power no longer existed. It got wiped off the fucking map. Well, would the world look different? Or would these would these developments continue apace? It's like, obviously not. And he knows that. Everyone fucking knows that. But America is behind the shit. <laughs> it's, it's very clear. I mean, and these are the people who pay him. Like, yes, this is like, at the, at the end of the day, it's like you, you have no choice but to frame it this way. And he has, he's also, you know, keep in mind, this is a universal history, right? This is not a specific history, which is, again, a separation between him and, like, the more right-wing oriented of the neoconservative crowd who will have no problem with um, American chauvinism, for example. Well, as long as it's in the service of Israel, of course. But, 
you're bringing in, you're, you're, you're setting up a problem when you're talking about the end of history and then you start talking about how like a specific historical form a power is now responsible for this process. You just, you can't do that. Uh, even though, again, America is like, it is the, it is a perfect vehicle for this type of thinking, right? Because I mean, Americans, Amer even Americans like who aren't, you know, elite liberals, like I've been associating to some extent with kind of some, like American right wingers just locally lately. And they they think in similar terms. They they see America as the end of history. This is a point I was trying to make at the beginning. We we're talking about how I, I do think that American he's giving an articulation. It's not his fault that this shit is insane. America is insane. He's just he has the unenviable task of giving a theoretical, philosophical justification for this fucking madness. Did, did he, did he day, just America aspire really... to become uh, just another author or did he view this as his vehicle to fame, which is effectively what it became? Or was he tasked with this project by somebody? I don't know if anybody knows Again, that I, on this I, call. I, but... I, don't know the, yeah. I don't know the answers and I also think it's neither here nor there because it's like the work really does speak for itself and that it's like – you know, if a if an if a farm animal, if the ideal goyim could speak in Hegelian terms, he would write this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and, and to that point, I would say we should look a little closer at uh, some more that he has to say. I feel that so when I talk about like what. What the vision of like the of the future and the last man is one thing that came to me. I have like scrawled across my wall again, like some kind of um, schizophrenic. Again, I, I am an American, uh, and I have uh, the philosophy of an insect because that's really what this is. It's an it's an insect's it's it's how an insect view, would view the world. Like a, it's a perfect world of the insect, and you can notice the parallels easily to uh, communism here. So let's quote from here. Uh, this is in the context of this. This is kind of when he's starting to walk back. He starts by giving almost an entirely economic vision of history. And he's going to move a bit into having to accept the political dimension and address that. But here he says, the mechanism is in other words, a kind of Marxist interpretation of history that leads to a completely non-Marxist conclusion, which is a very good summary of what he's doing. And agrees with the point I would make and the point that someone like uh, Sunak would make, which is they're, they're really mirrors of each other. Um, Bolsh the Bolsh Asiatic Bolshevism and American Bolshevism, they're really one and the same, or at the same in essence. They rest on the same fundamental assumptions. Um, the competition between them in the 20th century after the, the defeat of Europe was really just a competition of who can create the more efficient production consumer society. I mean, in the long run, I mean, anyways, uh, <clears throat> leads to a non-Marxist conclusion is the desire of man, the species being to produce and consume that leads him to leave the countryside for the city to work in large factories or large bureaucracies rather than on the land to sell his labor to the highest bidder instead of working in the occupation of his ancestors to acquire an education and to submit to the discipline of the clock. But contrary to Marx, 
the kind of society that permits people to produce and consume the largest quantity of products on the most equal basis is not a communist one, but a capitalist society. That's really the heart of it, man. I mean, he actually uses a formulation I have never seen anyone else use where he, at one point he's, he actually says consumer civilization. Oh God. Well, it's not entirely surprising that he would, but no, no, it's not. I, I think that again, frame this in the context of the time in which he was writing this. Uh, what were the primary economic trends, even if we remove the fall of the Soviet Union angle, just big, but. I think there's a tendency to overemphasize some of that too much. And part of that's just lack of imagination and creativity in explaining things. People just like to point to oh, the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, we should move away from that. What were the big economic trends going on? Well, the, in were... the late, uh, well, in the late eighties, early nineties, when he's writing this and when he's thinking about this. There's a couple that come to mind. We I mean, have the, the early formulation of a lot of the primary uh, international trade pacts. The U.S. is expanding its trade presence, the early whisperings of what would become NAFTA. Uh, you have a lot of cross-border M&A activity happening. The beginnings of offshoring and outsourcing and sort of hub-and-spoke distributed work models around the world. Um Banking consolidation, financial services consolidation, and growth. The growth of the entertainment sector, the growth of the news sector. Uh, actually, read, read an article uh, from Michael Lind. Uh, he's a good writer, actually. I, I like his his uh, his work. Uh, he's writing about um, Larry Summers and sort of these this crew, and Fukuyama was associated with and he was remarking on a speech that Summers gave in um, in the 90s talking about how the future of the American economy was entertainment and services and the news business and technology and all this sort of stuff and how in hindsight how post-industrial yes and how in hindsight how insane and sort of uh, and bizarre this is uh, and, and how ironically Summers himself has uh, like backtrack almost all of that and he has realized well, really? yes publicly very publicly yes uh, i think out of <sighs> fear and desperation but yeah. uh, but uh, so at any level you know this these are the, sort of the broad economic trends that are going on the movement towards post-industrial services the expansion of the entertainment sector lots of cross-border uh, cross-regional private equity investments m&a activity and if you're looking at this from Fukuyama's perspective, and you're one of these sort of high-ranking State Department bureaucrats or think tank analysts or economic policy planners, these sorts of types, bureaucrats, and you're thinking about you know the national strategy of the United States going forward, well, the national strategy of the United States going forward is the consumer economy. And... We've heard this phrase for decades, and the, the origins of this phrase really do find 
their uh, beginnings in, I think, their first utterances probably before the 1990s, but the 1990s was really when this became, I would say, common parlance, the consumer economy. Uh, and that the economy was about consumption, and the economy was made up of consumers. And so I don't really think that it's surprising that he would say this, he would frame it this way, the consumer life. No, it doesn't because, surprise me, but yeah. it, uh, I think, underlines the, the lack oh, of vi- vision of this particular individual and in that he's really just regurgitating a talking point that as a well, kid, uh, as, as somewhat of a sort of a aspiring entrepreneur as a young man, uh, I admired business, but I always recoiled at the notion of a consumer society just on a gut feel because right. it's, uh, well, <laughs> if you're not the reserve currency backed up by a gigantic military uh, upheld by this corrupt regime in the Middle East uh, doing something called the petrodollar, you can't consume without producing. Uh, and so just that basic intuition and logic uh, fault in this like statement of consumption-driven economy just never made any friggin' sense to me. And it, it, it bothered me, and it took me years to sort of understand really what it, what's behind it is really a kind of a semi-transnational system that encourages exports from particular uh, political allies and trading partners to keep them in a political alliance at the expense of the producer class of the central uh, workers of the empire. Uh, I don't don't need to go on perhaps, but it's basically just, uh, I I was thinking more nationalistically basically, and it it bothered me that this consumption stuff was was always emphasized, but there's always going to be a, 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 producer at, at one at one end so, so go ahead let's stay on another quote i'd like to read along the same lines um so the requirements of the rational organization of labor dictate certain consistent large scale changes in social structure industrial societies must be predominantly urban because it's only in cities that one finds an adequate supply of skilled labor required to run modern industries, and because cities have had infrastructure and services to support large, highly specialized enterprises. Apartheid in South Africa ultimately broke down because it was built on the belief that black industrial labor could somehow be kept permanently in the countryside. For labor markets to function efficiently, labor has to become increasingly mobile. Workers cannot remain permanently tied to a particular job, locale, or set of social relationships, but must become free to move about, learn new tasks and technologies, and sell as bitter. This has a powerful effect in undermining traditional social groups like tribes, clans, extended families, religious sects, and so on. The latter may, in certain respects, be more humanly satisfying to live in, But since they are not organized according to rational principles of economic efficiency, they tend to lose out to those that are. I mean, that's a that's some full throated neoliberalism. And it's an admission that behind it, there is a political dimension, namely that uh, capitalism market, industrial production, managerial organization, et cetera, whatever is necessarily going to disrupt and uh, uh, disintegrate uh, organic bonds. 
of community. It's an admission. It's basically like, yep, that's this is part of it. This is the end of this is this is where we're we're headed regardless. It's the process. And what I think is interesting in the context of uh, what you guys are talking about and the Cold War is that never was there uh, there was not going to ever come a political challenge to American power uh, internally. I, I just don't think that was really ever in the cards because Americans are politically literate and they are already they already are the end product for the most part. I mean, there's there's holdouts, of course, but you know the reality is americans are a r- raceless consumer society well and i think just, the super bowl just, is the is the and, uh, unfortunate epitome of the annual celebration of uh, advertising and uh, consumer corporate advertising of uh, really harmful products to most people uh while watching uh, yeah. large uh, west african uh, men hit each other. Um, it is the most lowbrow, uh, yeah. culturally distasteful yeah. event of the year, in my opinion. Precisely. I mean, there's it. America was under alien control uh, throughout the 20th century, and that the poison has has really has sunk in. I mean, the the patient is is basically dead. Um, but the thing is, is that the the charge that like history is over. And there, the process—you know—this process is simply going to continue. Anyone could have read that, especially people in the former Soviet bloc or Europeans could read that, and they'd laugh at it, essentially, because it's like, oh yes, here it is—the some Japanese who's the, an American is proclaiming that, like, it's uh, the the thousand-year American empire or whatever. It's like, no, it's not necessarily over, guy. Um, there's plenty of reasons to think that there will be political challenges that could come from occupied Europe. That's so that's always been in the cards. I mean, they've always known that. That's why, you know, and ironically, at the time of his writing this book, the most obvious rival to the United States, at least economically, was Japan. I mean, just ironically, like given his like uh, his family, family name uh, and China has since surpassed Japan as the economic hegemon uh, rivaling the United States, obviously. But the East Asian arc was certainly a, a the model was certainly a challenge uh, well before the 90s uh, to the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. The 80s and yeah. the 90s were right. just reinforcements of that um, as things shifted cool. away perhaps from Japan, but to the rest of Asia. Uh, and the fact that he couldn't recognize that is a glaring omission again. And I just, I don't know why this guy gets so much praise. I mean, I guess the title is catchy, but it's like, I, I don't see any real insights to this guy's work. Well, I, again, I, I'll get to my, I'll, I'll probably go more into contempt by the conclusion here, but uh, I do like to defend him in a certain sense that like he actually just articulates. He's no, he's not saying anything um, novel or original, but he's putting it all together and putting it out in a coherent way. I mean, this yeah, is, I, I agree. People I say agree. all the time. I mean, what was, was Paul? What was Paul Krugman's assessment of Japan back then? I mean, oh, you know what I mean, dude? I, like, it's yeah, okay. So I have one point I want to make. I'll finish my point and so throw it to you because I think you'll have some good things to say about. This. So my, what I'm the point I'm making is that the challenge was always assumed to be political that like, maybe it's not actually over guy, but, um, 
because he rests his laurels very comfortably on the idea that the American system, uh, and that's the other thing I want to, just to be clear, like I spent a lot of time deep in the weeds on capitalist liberal democracy, because that's the term he's using. That's the, that's the description, right? And I would prefer to call it is Americanism because, and that undermines a lot of what he's saying, but and that's partly my point is that it's really what he's talking about is Americanism. And anyways, his uh, comfortably resting on the victory of Americanism at the close of the Cold War was, I mean, the, largely predicated first on the economic argument that the products are going to be uh, standard of living, material comfort, et cetera, like consume product. This is all best achieved by the American system rather than the Soviet system, which was their big the the thing that they could always point to to make a positive case for themselves I mean, it's still somewhat negative but regardless like there was at least a selling point that yes well you can like it's a land of milk and honey and shit you can come consume blue jeans and uh, it's it's the winning system uh, because it delivers on the promises the fundamental assumptions of the USSR in America are very similar it's just that America is able to deliver the goods better. Now, what's interesting when we're talking now here in the year 2022 or whatever it is, uh, that the thing that was not anticipated by these people was the degree to which America would be deteriorating on exactly those standards. <laughs> that 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 was the thing that was like that was the easiest win was like, look, this thing works like. But now we're look at the conditions that we're in. I mean, he talks, I've been reading um, David Graeber recently. Uh, as a side. He would have a lot to say about this if he was still alive. He died uh, just recently, actually. The, he's a sort of a renegade Jew, uh, anarchist type. But you would think, for example, that we would be approaching something that resembles like almost post-scarcity if this system really worked that well. We would be working less, right? We would be having more time to do leisure and consume and enjoy. That, uh, and that mistake really has been made ever since too. Keynes and probably before, but that's a classic mistake of, uh, I don't know, economists or neoliberals or whatever. No, that, I don't think that Keynes the, was wrong. Um, I think in effect, we've, we've it's, resigned ourselves to that, but I think we still have a sorted of mating such that status is still recognized as the best indicator of fitness and women are still going to go for the guy with the most power and the money. I mean, it's no, just no, not no, going to no. work any other way. He's not, she's no, not going to go no. for the guy on the couch. On I, welfare. I'm not talking about that. What I'm so there's an no, incentive no, to work no, hard. No, 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 you, what. no, no, That's what, what I'm saying. Well, even if you have material abundance, the there's still going to be competition. That it's not going to go away. I guess there's still going to be competition, but you should, in a. So, are these eco Let me put it this way: Are these economic factors or political factors that are making uh, the con material conditions in American life and the prospects of being able to uh, save to own a home? Um, that to have a one only one member of the household working, that these right. things are all deteriorating. Is that because of pure economic things, or is there a political dimension? To that? I think technology is a because he actually that. makes the point that. Go ahead, though. Go ahead. Technology is a big part of. Okay, what I'm saying is that 
we could we could debate this, but yeah, go, go, the please, please finish. Big claim of success of the American system was its delivery on its material promises, and I'll hand it over to you. What does that look like since the uh, early 1990s at the close of the Cold War? It's it's definitely deteriorated in the sense that the the relative distribution has gotten very unequal. The overall uh, consumption capabilities have probably increased for most people, and obviously on average they have. But this is what I was getting at. The psychological well-being of a people is not necessarily determined by their absolute material well-being it's it's a lot of it is relative well-being and i think one of the ironic things about the american dream even though it was like always like sold as like well you can become you know the next rockefeller it was it was really more of like you can become middle class through you know something that you can be proud of it wasn't just handed to you but just like honest hard work you'll be able to get there and that was very appealing to a wide swathe of people because most people are average <laughs> by definition. And so they saw themselves as being able to obtain that rather than being you know, a wealthy son or a politically connected person or just, you know, just some thug stealing his way to, to wealth. Um, I think that has gone away, and I think that is what has caused this general anxiety and, and unhappiness in the United States. I think the overall wealth has gone up. I mean, and the number of billionaires keeps growing, uh, but the the spoils at the bottom and the middle have gone down for sure, and the distribution to them has gone down. And I think that's why people are generally uh, upset and unhappy, and that's why they keep working hard, because they're trying to get back up to where their parents were and their grandparents were, but and, and America has failed in that. And I think uh, that that is a factor of a lot of things, um, some of which have nothing to do with ideology. Uh, I, I think it, it is... I don't know if it's largely, but it is certainly partly uh, a factor caused by technology in that automation and production efficiencies have really just gotten rid of a lot of the, the low-skilled labor uh, because you can just have robots do it. Uh, and outsourcing and immigration have accelerated that as well because you can just hand that work over to cheap labor from overseas uh, or illegal immigrants or newly arrived immigrants that were sketchily given some kind of passport to uh, work in these food factories and you know, garbage jobs that really people don't associate with high status. And so the middle class doesn't really go for them. You have this overproduction of elites where you're, you're all university educated, but you're working at Starbucks uh, because you, you can't, you know, get a factory job because they don't really exist unless you're, you know, working for three cents an hour or whatever the minimum wage is, uh, and uh, cutting half your half your hand off every time you put your hand in to pull out the feathers from the the chicken processor. Uh, so, it, the 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 guy who worked uh, for the you know Ford factory and he was a member of the union and he had time to play with his kids on the weekend and his wife uh, stayed at home and raised their three children. That has gone away. And I think that's what's caused a lot of the frustration. And, and that's, I think, the failure of the economic side of the American dream over the past 40-plus uh, years, definitely. And I've criticized that, uh, I think, fairly consistently. Uh, because I think, again, people's happiness is not necessarily determined by their 
actual absolute wealth because the wealth has gone up. I mean, the technology has, has improved. The, the, the reason that there's so much to buy for so cheap, um, inflation aside, which is somewhat related to the imperial policies and just uh, commodity markets, but you know, the, your laptop has gotten faster, your phone has gotten smarter and faster, or quote unquote smarter, but at least it can do more things for less money. And the technology that, that enables that increase in absolute wealth, however, displaces the people that used to do useful things that are now obsolete. Just like, you know, the blacks who were brought over to be cotton pickers were displaced by the cotton gin. A lot of that has now extended to other groups of the population. They used to be, uh, yes. I mean, t telephone switch operators are gone. You don't need them anymore. Uh, you know, my mom, you know, did stuff like that when she was young. Uh, my grandfather worked at a gas station. I mean, a lot of these jobs are just superfluous. And so what do these people do? Well, nobody knows. Like, okay, you see a bunch of old people working at Walmart as greeters, but they're doing that sort of out of desperation. It's not really a career move, obviously. Uh, yes. And so, it's there's just not enough meaningful this, work to go that's around. A good... Go ahead. Well, this is so this is the point I'm getting at is that Marxism then has not been defeated uh, on the no. economic front. <laughs> no, it like hasn't. It, it has its in inherent appeal. Because this, <laughs> this opens you up. Yes, this opens you up to a very obvious critique. And this is a kind of critique that someone like David Graeber would make and would make very effectively. And he would say that. So this uh, increased production and efficiency. So why isn't that people are able to just work less and be able to uh, enjoy in the fruits of this production and wealth? Because we we live in a competitive landscape, would, and you, people are going to be rewarded for outcompeting other. Why people. is it a competitive landscape? Competitive landscape does not bring. No, but this does not it's bring just nature. And it's just the nature of biology. If we're I mean, taking we're, a perspective we're, of we're, pure. No, it's not the nature of biology. The, na the nature of. No, that can be delivered by a competing system that did exactly that. Well, oh, please elaborate. I'm not sure. And what people you would mean. want it. People would absolutely want it. Uh, a vast European style welfare state, even like more so, universal basic income. These are kinds of things that would absolutely be in demand from the perspective of a consumer society. Well, yeah, I should you have to be society, a greeter yeah. at Walmart. Well, that's the claim. I mean, that's or that's rather that's the perspective we're operating from. Yeah. I mean, that was always a a, a, a endpoint in Mark in the Marxist uh, vision. The endpoint would be something like a four-hour week, where you could you know read Hegel in the evening and go fishing and right. do all kinds of things. Every man could be a, a, a philosopher or whatever. Like this right. is the Marxist vision of the endpoint of an egalitarian society in which material comfort is delivered on. That well, yeah, the Star Trek. This I mean, way of thinking you got, you that, got a that's replicator. What you, you should yeah. be able to deliver on if your claim is that you're going to be able to provide the greatest amount of happiness and comfort for the greatest number of people, you should not have fucking people greeting at Walmart. You have failed, capitalist. You're uh, doing useless work. Yeah, You're doing useless make work on behalf of a system that is exploited. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just. I'm. I'm addressing 
a general perspective here, Adam. I, okay. I get what you're saying. I Got just it. I, my point <laughs> is that you're no longer you're 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 no longer competitive. You're you're opening yourself up again to this to the 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 case is not settled anymore. That like oh cap right. uh, market capitalism with some degree of like regulation and uh, social safety nets is the final system. It's fucking laughable. Like Derrida made the same point in his criticisms of Fukuyama. Uh, David Graeber would say the same thing. It's like you're you're opening yourself up to a lot of criticism because you're no longer. You were saying sitting there, you know, in the '90s, saying that like it's it's self-evident that this is the the system that best delivers on comfort and security. That from the perspective from an insect point of view, this is the best place. To, this is the final form of insect life. It would be under American yeah. capitalism, the yeah. American system. But it's, it's just clearly not the it, case. It, it clearly was to, not so correct throughout the rest of history. I mean, it, it just was empirically wrong. At the time, one can give him a little bit of leeway in sort of noticing, I think correctly, the contrast with the communist system in Russia which was not delivering consumer goods at all, or very well at least. There were, there were massive shortages and people complaining, mean, waiting 20 years for a crappy car. I mean, things like that, you know, like, oh, I got my apartment, I'm 57 years Nobody old. Nobody was homeless, though. Right, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's pros and cons, but the, the sort of contrast between a supermarket stuffed to the gills with sugar and carbs but notwithstanding but lots of stuff right versus something that's like got like a jar of pickles and nothing else that kind of sucks right so i think that's like you know i can understand how you could sort of say that system is not that great right uh and then this one is better but okay. he's not correct no, it, you know that it's like the perfect thing because there's problems too and it, it has had more problems arguably since then that yeah. have manifested Benson, exactly no, no that, this is my point, is that, like, they, they had, he, he thought he was comfortable in saying, well, this case is settled on that one uh, back in the 90s, but uh, fast forward 30 years, and that's, it is not settled, because things have gotten worse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you From a communist, pseudo-communist country, ironically, is a, a main rival. Um, not the only reason, but, you know, it's like, the, the Soviet Union fell apart, but, like, the uh, ostensible ally uh, <laughs> on the other part of the Eurasian landmass was somehow ignored, and uh, wow, what what a, what a what a change um, since the uh, end of the Cold War. Right. Exactly. But but I think I think so, it's it's good to um, kind of give him credit where credit is due and i think that's that's a good thing to do for anybody um because you know we we can get ideological all we want but if uh part of our goal here as just a roundtable discussion uh, is to learn i mean we do need to look at things uh with a sort of even keel and and i do appreciate that you've put forward his uh positive contributions i i don't think he's stupid i and i think he is a little bit um beholden to a system that employs him and anybody can unfortunately fall into that trap no matter how well-intentioned they are it's just a reality of life so I, I excuse a little bit of that but um i think it's fine well, so i mean he's gotten was, he's gotten I, we, tons of criticism so i i don't think he's like a, a false like god or something i think it's, it's just an interesting the, the, my, 
my point was to bring up the the thing that was supposed to be easy was the economic thing. Um, it, it, that's looking less and less true. The economic account of why it is that uh, we have arrived, so to speak. Um, but he does have to acknowledge a political dimension. I'll just I'll just hit this. this we don't have to go. To, this is not. This is kind of easy. So uh, beyond the economic, the way that he allows for a political dimension, because he would say that, like, he would acknowledge, as anyone would have to, that men have made decisions in in uh, the course of history that are clearly not economic decisions. Like, there are decisions that got them killed, and they very well knew that these decisions would get them killed. Um, those are people who struggled on behalf of an idea in a, in a political struggle. And so he has to account if this system, the Americans, the Americanist idea that he's saying is the final, the final system, uh, it has to address all the needs of the human organism, right? So it has to deliver on the, the basic the, the man as the insect man, but then also it goes beyond the insect philosophy and uh, you have to address something else is just man as man, a man as a, as a, a fundamentally a spiritual being. And the way he does this is a address democratic man because Democrat is the political dimension that he allows for capitalism is the economic liberalism is the negation of, of a political. And then you smash together Democrat at the end and that's the concession for something political. Okay. So, the way that he does this and what he says, the need that is going to be met, um, the political need, the way that can be met to the individual uh, in the context of a political man, democratic man, is what he would say. And um, I'll give you his quote, actually. So from the preceding discussion, it should be clear that we cannot explain the phenomenon of democracy adequately if we try to understand it solely in economic terms. An economic account of history gets us to the gates of the promised land of liberal democracy, but it does not quite deliver us to the other side. Hallelujah. The process of economic modernization may bring about certain large-scale social changes like the transformation of tribal and agricultural societies into urban, educated, middle-class ones that in some way create the material conditions for democracy. But this process does not explain democracy itself. For if we look more deeply into the process, we find that democracy is almost never chosen for economic reasons. The first major democratic revolutions is the United States and France both took place just as the Industrial Revolution was getting underway in England and before either country had modernized economically as we understand the term today. Their opting for the rights of man could therefore not have been condemned by the industrialization process. The American founding fathers may have been angered over the attempts of the British Crown to tax them without representation in Parliament, but their decision to declare independence and fight Britain in order to establish a new democratic order can hardly be explained as a matter of economic efficiency. Then, as many subsequent points in world history, uh, the option of uh, prosperity without liberty existed from the Tory planters who opposed the Declaration of Independence of the United States to the 19th century authoritarian modernizers of Germany and Japan uh -huh, uh, to contemporaries like Deng Xiaoping, who offered his country economic liberalization and modernization under the continued tutelage of a dictatorial communist party and Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore who has argued 
argued that democracy would be an obstacle to Singapore's spectacular economic success. And yet people in all ages have taken the non-economic step of risking their lives and their livelihoods to fight for democratic rights. There is no democracy without Democrats, that is, without a specifically democratic man that desires and shapes democracy even as he is shaped by it. Okay. You see what he did here? Um, this is his allowance for, for the political because the last yeah. man is something – there is a dimension of man that has to be accounted for. You know, the, and we're, the idea is to assume us all into insect philosophy of homo economicus, uh, but there's still an obstacle to that that he, he recognizes – where there's a political impulse yeah. and that can be seen. Can I, can I put forward a, a, a caveat, though, to the assumption that insect uh, man bleeds only into the economic? I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think insect uh, mentality, mindset, whatever, is the insect pill, you, you are one of many. And I think that could be political. It could be like a military society, the Spartans or something. I, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, we're all like uh, day trading. You the know, Spartans are not an insect society. The Spartans uh, are an okay. Aryan society. Okay. I'm, I, I, do you understand what I'm saying though? Like it's, it, it's not necessarily I do, the, the goals I, I of the pass. group don't necessarily have to lead to, uh, you know, counting money at the end of the day. It can be things like counting heads of the enemy or whatever. It's, the insect to me is really, it's a small cog in a larger machine. And I think that can be applied to whatever ends of the goal of the hive, but it's not necessarily one which looks like what we have in America. I disagree. I think that as soon as you involve uh, ideas like sacrifice and struggle, you have moved out of the insect realm and into the realm of man. Okay, okay. And so when you when you talk about organization uh, predicated on the idea of a collective organic entity like a state or a military or some tribe or whatever, uh, that is the realm of man. That is not the realm of insects. The realm of insects is the realm of pure consumers. Well, okay, um, but insects are somewhat unthinking subsist. creatures. And their relationship to each other is. And I would yeah, I would sort of ascribe right. that quality I mean, somewhat to yes, okay. North Korea has less degeneracy, but I, I don't want to live in North Korea. I mean, and they quell dissent by ungodly means. And it's it's not a place that encourages independent thinking. Probably shouldn't speak out against the party. Okay. Well, I again, I don't want to live there. And I think it's, uh, it's a model that just doesn't work very well uh, for a lot of reasons. But... Um, I think there's alternative models that have some of those characteristics that don't have to get to such abject bad outcomes as the North Koreans. But all I'm saying is the the group mentality is is fine. Uh, it's 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 a part of organization and and life and and civilization. You could argue, uh, but I don't necessarily think it is in and of itself indicative of higher civilization. I think you can have bad civilizations. Um, and personally to me, whenever I think of insect, I just think of, as un, of, of an unthinking entity. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that's good. I, I think, 
you know, having some of those ideas of at least the political liberalism that I like, like free speech, I think is, is integral, um, to a, a healthy society I, in the long run. I, I started out by giving a chance, um, to say okay things about liberalism uh, in the sense that um, liberalism has not always been exactly synonymous with uh, what we associate with today. Uh, I think that th this is covered to a certain point. I I will I want to stick my point about Fukuyama, but I will address what you said insofar as I will give my my definition, loosely speaking, of what what civilization really is. And I, I would view civilization as a, a superhuman entity. Sure. Uh, it's, yeah, as in, it's something that it is not simply, it's not simply the um, sum total of its members. You add them up. It's something that takes a life of its own by virtue of being part of a holistic organic unit that is, no, we don't need to like, it doesn't need to be Borg. You know, this, this is not my point. I'm <laughs> When I say economic man and an insect mentality, it's just that the scope of, of man and his relationship to his people, to his, to his, to his folk, to his, to what he belongs to uh, is not an economic relationship. It's a relationship where the bonds between men, I mean, it's not, I'm not talking about like that. It's either like you're a libtard or you're Juche. Like this, this is not my, my framework. <laughs> I, I'm I just giving an example uh, where really it's enjoying. not necessarily there's, the highest there's life some good, form. Um, sounds of Juche. Uh, yeah. Like a, a channel, North Korean music you can find on YouTube is very nice. But, um, my my point is that the political aspect of life are these are these types of relationships, and that they're they're the other they're the the bonds that are not economic bonds. They're they're commitments of of loyalty, duty, obligation, honor. These are the types of things that men have gone to war over. And he would the liberals will always acknowledge that they claim that they're. Uh, liberalism le leads to the absence of war. It's a negation of war. This is obviously, from a historical perspective, bullshit uh, because they end up engaging in the political regardless of what they say about themselves and what their professed ideals are. But um, to fight and die for something is an expression of a, of a higher of a higher value to engage in the struggle. Now, whatever that may be, you know, whoever, where, whatever it is, you a given person belongs to. Uh, that's a noble and honorable thing. And that's a part of what makes a man. And this is what he's getting into as far as the, what needs to be, because he's accounting for this, that there's some other dimension of man that is not insect man, that is man as man. And so what he allows for this is a conception of democratic man. That's, that's his, as far as he goes for a political man, he's basing, Yikes. he bases this off of, well, yeah, and well, his. But what's interesting is he creates a problem for himself here, which is that what is the need that needs to be fulfilled in order to perfect the system and allow for 
the impetus of the political to be satisfied by the Americanist, soon-to-be final global system, right? Uh, and he, what he would describe this as is recognition. What does that right? mean? That's an interesting thing to say, right? Well, he gets it from Plato as far as like a, there's a sort of tripartite distinction between like the needs of man and what it means is identity is what he what he really means by it. But oh, okay. that's, of course, problematic, right? Because now we're talking about Apparently. the importance <laughs> of identity. Well, it's it is problematic when you're supposed to be a raceless um, yeah, yeah. consumer. Well, why does he really identity. like get so, into the race thing? I, I know he mentioned the blacks, but like, no, no I, this I, race I, thing became more of like I'm, a Obama I, era stuff. I don't remember America well, talking like yes this no. in the nineties. Like, maybe a little bit, but he like, doesn't talk like he doesn't talk like an anti-racist. But if you've noticed from some of the quotes that I've read, what he has said very explicitly is that this process and this. Um, Adherence and uh, submission to the Americanist uh, system leads necessarily to the dissolution of other bonds. Says this, I read several quotes where he makes that point, right? That like other that you're going to be, you know, effects of urbanization, market, whatever. That like you're going to have to move. You're going to have to. You're going to have to adapt to essentially a cosmopolitan, urban. Mm -hmm. uh environment of living in the hive yeah this is it's just and he's not the only one to make that point but which by the way uh this is a it, it is a good reference point for uh smacking down the the absolutely delusional left-wing you know like hard left sort of uh accusation that I don't even know to what extent is it's in jest or not, or uh, in sincerity rather, that uh, capitalism is racist, because there is no force that is more anti-racist than capitalism. Um, it depends. It's 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 not. Yeah, I I don't know if it's anti-racist. I think it's just it's it's agnostic in the sense that it does what makes more mm. money. That's how I've always seen it, and. You know, at the time, it's anti-racist in the sense it's it's. Yeah, go ahead. It, it's anti, it's anti-traditional. Yeah, because it yeah it dissolves, uh, if the, it dissolves barriers and it it right. um it is predicated on a fundamental equality of um participation in the market is like each it doesn't matter it's like an individuals participate it doesn't matter what they belong to they're participating in the market chomsky made this point too like even chomsky has said it but every now and then you still find leftists i mean the more coherent ones will clarify that what they really mean in the racist is that capitalism ends up exploiting the third world which is implicitly exploiting the the brown hordes um but that's that's not substantial enough to say that it's racist it just so happens that the yes the lands that are um, open to exploitation just happen to be populated by low iq mud people like that's yeah. surprising anyone no of course not I mean, pretty much just get real but it's not right when you look domestically it's not racist at all i mean the uh if you look at uh integration it was all in a lot of cases it was private firms that were um integrating like for example public transportation stuff in the south uh, it was like, like 
private um, as rather than public uh, buses and things that were uh, for uh, and, and he made the point also about South South Africa uh, and that's things we're ignoring. Is that is that true? Like I, I don't know enough about how the apartheid system worked, but his notion that the blacks were kept in the countryside. Uh, strikes me as a little bit um, unlikely, given that I have seen photographs and heard accounts of how a lot of uh, domestic labor was done by blacks, a lot of uh, cheap labor, whatever that means, was done by blacks. And some of that has got to be manual labor, factory labor, things like that. It can't just yeah, be farm yeah, labor. Um, like, I don't I, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, Maybe he's right. I just don't know enough about it. There's a lot of unions, though. There, there were unions. It's, it's just... Uh, there's a definitely some truth to that, but it's not. I I do disagree that it was like the driving reason for the end of uh, apartheid. Oh, it was a boycott, a international of siege of was, the country. It was political. Yeah, I mean, it was political, not economic. Economic that concern, like why given uh, capitalists or whatever, are going to commit uh, treason against their race and their nation, I, I which think is always was, the case. I think but, it was all of it, all of uh, the above. Not, I mean. But we, we could yeah. maybe do a show on that. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I need yeah, to learn more about yeah. it, honestly. We, we, yeah, I'd, we, I'd, I'd be down to do some uh, South African content. But uh, also, by the way, I, anyone who's remains uh, with this, I understand it's probably a it's long in the weeds episode, but uh, Hans had to go to bed. We're recording uh, relatively late. Oh, uh, sleep, so just sleep tight. Know that that's why he's not. Uh, I guess Adam, did, Adam didn't even know that. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. He kind of like drops off, like just inside baseball for the audience. Uh, he's he's an interesting guy, very smart, but he, uh, <laughs> I think he 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 grew up too much on the on the the chans or the the forums or something. He just kind of pieces out. He doesn't say goodbye, so I'm, I'm often caught off guard that he's like disappeared. He from says the, uh, the call. I saw him say goodbye. Oh, maybe he put it in the chat, but he doesn't vo- vo- vocalize like... it very much. Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really? Oh, I don't know where I was. Wait, maybe maybe I went to the. To the restroom or something, well, but any, in any case, no, he, um, he, he's, yeah, he said he was going to. We can move on um, from this. Uh, good night. Good night. <laughs> getting towards some level of conclusion here. I, I this is a really big subject, and I hope I have add some clarity to it. It the point where we, where we were at was the his allowance for the political, namely that he accepts a need for what he, he'll say recognition and what he means is identity and that, but that identity, the way that that need is going to be met is through democratic man, which means through voting man, which in many respects is then another, it's sort of like the adaptation of the consumer insect mindset to the political where, you know, you pull lever or whatever and get head pat and someone says like, yes, I've, I've noticed you, citizen. And then you feel like warm fuzzies or whatever as you vote for, uh, uh, I don't know, Joe, uh, Barack Obama or something. <laughs> like that's that's kind of the extent. He is, again, he's not very convincing as far as like, he's not trying to convince us or anything but it is an interesting admission that he recognizes that there's going to there's a life of man and that the best he can do is offer some form of recognition let, let, let me ask you we'll have to, this honestly after we've some sort of level of participation in the manager after we've yeah. sort of reviewed his work um again it's it's not necessarily a slam against the man 
any author has to do a little bit of this, honestly, whenever they're writing a grandiosely titled book. But how much, Nick, how, how much of this, like, uh, evidence that he's presenting do you think was shoehorned into his uh, preordained thesis? Uh, as opposed to the other way around, which is what proper science is, where you actually collect evidence first, then form your conclusion. I think he formed the conclusion, then looked for supporting evidence uh, to back it up. And it, it sounds kind of weak that he's kind of throwing in these little tidbits to sort of uh, make his assert, final assertion. That's my just impression, but I, again, I didn't read the book. So I'm asking you, do you think he shoehorned this in well, or do you think it, he's firmly a, convinced by what he's saying and, it, and all these little words that. I mean, that's the thing, man. Like it's, uh, this, that gets us into the, it could easily get us into the weeds on just generally speaking philosophy of history, which <laughs> is what he's engaging in. Uh, yeah. like Elian is a, and philosophy, the thing about history is like, History, you can't apply. Like he, he is a rationalist, right? Like, I don't in know. The liberal tradition, like he's, which is by the way another possible definition of liberalism, is the application of um, rationalism uh, to the political. What, what does that mean? Which is, but, I mean, uh, he not, is not to be dismissive, a, but like, what is that? What? Like, what is rationalism? I, I have my own personal definition of what rational means, but it's I don't, I don't apply it to what a uh, trans inclusive LGBTQ plus school board uh, liberal would, would, I don't think they're rational. So, I mean, can you, what is a rationalist? Like what, what is mechanism essentially? A what? It's mechanistic and empiricist. It's, but it's not empiricist. Empirically, it's not empiricist. Like, how can they say that we're all equal when we're clearly we're not? I mean, that doesn't seem rational. It doesn't seem empirical. Well, that's an assumption. That's an that's an a priori assumption. That you're you got to assume. That's, of that's course, not that empirical because you do. <laughs> empirical that's, lets lets the evidence guide you. Uh, so they're ignoring evidence. That everyone's equal. I don't know. I mean, do you understand what I'm asking? It, it, there's well, so many contradictions start, a, to this. I, I I do. Okay. I can give you their pers- his perspective as best I can, and that's that uh, there are certain assumptions that are made. Um, I make assumptions. You make assumptions. Of course. We all come to an assessment you have of history to. with a priori assumptions. You don't have time in the, the day the difference to is, though, that, question well, everything. Well, our assumptions are right. His assumptions are wrong. <laughs> well, I, I I hope they're right, but I'm open to being convinced the point, that they're wrong. What do you are you open to being convinced your ancestors were wrong? Of course. I want I want I want to understand things because I think in the long run, if I can understand things better, my my successors, not my predecessors, my successors will be better off. If I have a faulty assumption, a false axiom, and I raise my children and my grandchildren with that false axiom, they're not going to be prepared for the future. So I am open no, to no, being I, corrected. No, Absolutely. I mean that your ancestors. No, 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 I don't mean that you're open to recognition that your ancestors made mistakes. I mean that they were wrong. That their being isn't wrong. That they were. Um, that they 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 should. They should have been in at a different place, perhaps as slaves is what they deserve. No, I don't I don't accept that as I don't accept that as a believer in uh, 
certain inalienable rights of my own individual uh, lineage. I, 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 and I think every organism there, should there defend itself. There are things that are beyond every, every, there are things that are beyond um, empirical investigation. In fact, many things in life are. I mean, empirical investigation is suitable for a certain domain, and it's not suitable for a lot of other things. Well, I think for subjective you know, things, it's things sort just, of pointless. It, 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 it's, it's like preferences, you know, are not subject to uh, empirical proofs. It's more of like just an observation. But the uh, in any case, I don't. I think we're getting off uh, the the main points. We of, are getting of, off. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm trying to understand. The, you, the, you asked the, the question: Does yeah, he does he shoehorn these things? Oh, yeah. Let me let me clarify. Yeah. My, my point is that, like, a given a, a philosophy of history, like you're going to need, need to have certain a priori assumptions as you uh, invest, as you in order to know what to look for, what what facts of history. Not to say we shouldn't be an assessment from facts. I I, I agree that like, you start from facts of reality, not from uh, a fantasy about what it is you think things should be, but you you do start a, a a real assessment of history is going to have to, a real theory of history is going to have to come from certain facts, and he's operating in a milieu of an attempt at a universal history, which uh, there have been others who have also tried that aren't libtards, uh, most notably Oswald Spangler, and the idea being that are there things that we can apprehend about history in a general sense, namely, are there, are there laws of history? And yeah, you and I have kind of talked about that a little something. bit. As a, I don't, it, it's a little bit of an interesting concept before. to me. It's funny because we're still yeah. recording right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're, we're, I would just say for the audience, we're, we're still recording, but I think partly because we've reached some of the end of this discussion and because Hans is gone, this right now really we're this is Adam and I this is like typical yeah, discussion that we post, have after the post, show. Uh, um, podcast I guess we're leaving it talk. in this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little it is a little strange. This is kind of like I guess bonus content at this point because uh, I'm no sure. longer presenting something to the audience. I'm Adam and I are now going back and forth and just as we often well, do. I mean, um, to me, this is what the show's I, about is is a discussion and trying to uh, yeah. you know dis- discover things. So. Sure. No, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Now. I'm just, just saying, like, well, the basis of a no. I think I think you've done you've done your due diligence and you've the presented uh, the, uh, the the outside source. I think uh, somewhat. I mean, I would say fairly, but given I haven't read it, I don't really know if it's like the best representation but i'll take your word for it and i think it's also fair to opine once we presented what the author actually tried to put forward i think it's good you know both yeah yeah. i i I will say this then like i i did try to i try to treat it seriously because again i I want someone to i want to see someone make the case because my my general assessment is just this is a rapacious and sick system that has been under alien domination for a long time. And it's really distorted. It's distorted so much of what should exist as organic life, or rather when I say should, I mean that would exist in the absence of some, there were some problems that have been there and been with us for a while, which uh, that's another 
subject. But I mean, for the 20th century, which is the scope of the program, I mean, it's really not difficult to understand the course of 20th century history and uh, the American involvement of the American power in it. And it's it's very clear what it it's become and who fucking runs it. I mean, this isn't like mystery and it's hard to like take ideas. I mean, there was a time in European history and when ideas and things like mattered, you know, like <laughs> there, there was some, there was some like discussion to be had. But, I, I would love to it, uh, quantum you know, leap into I, that reality just just and to see do. to see what that was like. I, ideas do I have still not experienced. There's just no challenge to them. Oh man, yeah. These, these ideas, like what what Fukuyama is putting forward, like these are ideas that are dictating the course of 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 the facts of the present facts of histor of historical reality these these ideas do matter you know i mean there's a, a certain level of cynicism that goes with it because like how much is america really so you call it what do you call it you call it a, a liberal capitalist democracy so is that really even accurate anymore though is there can i be expected to be afforded equal protection under a, a neutral public uh, legal system really can i expect that can I expect I'm able to participate in a democratic process and be able to see to it that the, the will of myself and my people is is to be uh, reflected in the state organization? Can I expect that? Is that a reasonable expectation? Capitalism. Can I expect that, uh, you know, so it's what, a free market, right? So why is it that um, the massive uh, system of uh, socialism and favors for multinational elites and billionaires? Why, why does that work that way? I mean, it's just all a fucking joke on the one hand, because it's like, you can't really, on the one hand, these ideas matter, because they do, and that's how we got here. Ideas do matter. But on the other hand, the ideas are, they're kind of a, a husk and a parody of what they're, they're supposed to signify. Because really all it is is a mask for a domination of a, of a vampiric international money power. Um, I think I think that's true. I think some of that has always been true. A lot of the uh, the ideas that are given to the masses are really just uh, wet blankets to keep them from rioting. Um, you could say that was the role of the church to a certain degree. Uh, but if you look at propaganda going back through the ages, it's always been there and it's, it's typically designed to motivate the masses to the will of the elite. Uh, I think that's, that's just true throughout history to, to, to different degrees and, and to, to benefits of different groups for sure that changes a lot, but that common thread of those in power being corrupt, that's, that's always been true. It's always been true. Yeah. That's, it's the myth. Right. Right, which you know, myths can be in the service of a of of good things. They can be in the service of a healthy social order. You know, the myth of the blood. You can. There's nothing. The fact that it's mythic in nature is not necess, is not is not to discredit it. Uh, it's discredited for other reasons, not the fact that it's a that it happens that it's a myth of power. It's the it's discredited because of what that power is and what that myth leads to in this particular case. 
Uh, I'd like to, because we could definitely we would definitely ramble on. So I, I do think it's a probably time that we we end the show. Yeah. But I do want to read. Uh, the uh, I, I think it's rather than you, me give you all of my uh, contempt, I will uh, I will read this instead. Okay. <clears throat> The time has come for man to set himself a goal. The time has come for man to plant the seed of his highest hope. His soil is still rich enough, but one day the soil will be poor and domesticated, and no tall tree will be able to grow in it. Alas, the time is coming when man will no longer shoot the arrow of his longing beyond man, and the string of his bow will have forgotten how to whirl. <clears throat> I say unto you, one must still have chaos in oneself to be able to give birth to a dancing star. I say unto you, you still have chaos in yourselves. Alas, the time is coming when man will no longer give birth to a star. Alas, the time of the most despicable man is coming. He that is no longer able to despise himself. Behold, I show you the last man. What is love? What is creation? What is longing? What is a star? Thus asks the last man, and he blinks. The earth has become small, and on it hops the last man who makes everything small. His race is as ineradicable as the flea beetle. The last man lives the longest. We have invented happiness, say the last man, and they blink. They have left the regions where it was hard to live for one needs warmth. One still needs one's neighbor and rubs against him for one needs warmth. Becoming sick and harboring suspicion are sinful to them. One proceeds carefully. The fool, whoever still stumbles over stones or human beings. A little poison now and then that makes for agreeable dreams. And much poison in the end. Agreeable. One still works, for work is a form of entertainment, but one is careful lest the entertainment be too harrowing. One no longer becomes poor or rich. Both require too much exertion. Who still wants to rule? Who obey? Both require too much exertion. No shepherd and one herd. Everybody wants the same. Everybody is the same. Whoever feels different goes voluntarily in madhouse. Formerly, all the world was mad, say the most refined, and they blink. One is clever and knows everything that has ever happened, so there is no end of derision. One still quarrels, but one is soon reconciled else it might spoil the digestion. One has little pleasure for the day and one little pleasure for the night, but one has a regard for health. Invented happiness, say the last man in the blink.
Brothers in arms, swords of the legion, light of my eye. There is no end in sight. Our nation's twisting like prey in the blood of the ebbing day. Behind these walls of Elysia, let's pray. Nothing's ever over. There is no closure, no fulfillment, no relief. You'll have to trust me on this. There is no closure. Nothing's ever over. There's no end to history. You'll see. Come home someday to find it all saved by sheer luck. We'll say it was by hearts that never quavered, a will that never wavered. We will kneel and feel their blade. Nothing's ever over. There is no closure, no fulfillment, no relief. You'll have to trust me on this. There is no closure. Nothing's ever over. There's no end to history. You'll see. Nothing's ever over. There is no closure. No fulfillment. No relief. You'll have to trust me on this. There is no closure. Nothing's ever over. There's no end to history. You'll see. Nothing's ever over. There is no closure, no fulfillment, no relief. You'll have to trust me on this. There is no closure. Nothing's ever over. There's no end to history. You'll see. Nothing's ever over. There is no closure, no fulfillment, no relief. Have to trust me on this. There is no closure. Nothing's ever over. There's no end to history. You'll see. Nothing's ever over. There is no closure. There is no closure. Nothing's ever over. Nothing's ever over. Nothing's ever over. Nothing's ever over. 